Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Friday morning, August 18th, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, No Shot Josh. Good morning. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. What was all the confusion and controversy? <laughs> well, we're actually. On I, the I air. love it. I love it when the technical folks can't get on the same page. You love. You love no, it. I, asked, <laughs> I said, "Do I have enough time to go get a Celsius?" Yeah, we got a minute. No, we don't. No, no, we didn't. Uh, yeah, we're on the air a minute early, so we might need to wait for the other stations to join before we actually start the show. So it's going to be another few seconds here. Is it really? You yeah. can sing, Rev. In the meantime, no, no, no singing. Kind of pour Celsius while yeah, we go do. ahead. This, this is sort. Of, in fact, this is since this we, is the ritual we we begin the show with. We had a, a missing programming element in the first before the first start of the show, and actually, it's now time. So we're good. So we're good to go. Yeah. We're so good. do I we're do good. it again? Let's, do let's, I relaunch? <laughs> let's relaunch for the listeners. Welcome. Good there morning. Go. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. It's Friday morning, August the eighteenth. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. I think we went on the air a minute early in Florence. Am I right, Ref? Uh, not, not in Sumter, Orangeburg, we but we're um we're in sync now. Yep. Good to go. Yep. Um, Celsius life water and decaf coffee in fold or in tow. Um, couple of stories we can delve into as we begin the show. Kind of an interesting conversation that you and I had yesterday when I um. Uh, not announced. I mean, it's not an announcement I made, but when I said that I felt, I, I felt like I needed to defend Trump more than I needed to go after Biden. It, it's some sort of personal impulse. Um, right. You know, I, I guess I dictate the uh, the content of the show. Obviously, we play off one another. No shot. Josh chimes in from time to time. We wait on our calls to suggest or alter the show in some way, shape, or form. But for some reason. The last three days, I have been inclined to try and defend uh, some of the indictments here, indictments there, indictments, indictments everywhere, I guess, is kind of the uh, the theme of this. And the Biden story, I think, will make its way to the mainstream at some point in time. Now, he may not be Joe Biden when we get all the uh, all the goods. He may be Robert L. Peters. Robert L. Peters. And sometimes, I mean, uh, an, an alias, a pseudonym. Um, that he's going by, we think. I mean, we don't know that to be true. Do you know that, Josh? You're looking at me a little bit bewildered. I did morning. not know about Robert L. Peters. Yeah, the, the, there's a there's a story out today that Joe Biden, um, well, the the ways and excuse me, the oversight committee, James Comer, has been somewhat of a bulldog. I mean, let's give the guy a little bit of credit. He's been kind of in your face, Fox News. I mean, obviously, the major networks could care less what he says because they're the propaganda arm of the American political left. But the the committee is still seeking information, um, and they stumbled upon uh, a nugget of information. It's an email. Um, it's a subject, and the subject line says Friday schedule card. Um, there's a document that is attached to that email that indicates then-president, excuse me, then-vice president Biden had a call with the Ukrainian president Petro Poroshenko. Um, the document was not sent to Joe Biden. The document was sent to, you ready, um, Eric Sherwin, Hunter Biden, Devin Archer, and Robert L. Peters. Hmm. First time we'd ever heard the name Robert L. Peters. We know who Devin Archer is. Uh, if you follow the story, you know who Eric Schwerin is. We obviously know who Hunter Biden is. They are associates of Rosemont Seneca. We never heard the name Robert L. Peters. Comer is accusing Joe Biden of using 
a pseudonym, uh, uh, an alias, um, to avoid some of the freedom of information that would apply if it were, you know, Joe Biden. In other words, if you Who do a the freedom of information, sure, the time. no question about it. If you do a uh, freedom of information, let's say that, you know, Community Broadcasters was a publicly owned, excuse me, a um, not publicly owned, but but rather a, a, a public, what am I trying to government. say? A government agency. I mean, it was um, funded by the taxpayer. There you go. That's a better way to explain it. Funded by the taxpayer. Universities are subject to this. Government agencies are subject um, to this. There's a certain parameter or criteria that it has to meet if FOI laws, freedom of information laws apply. Um, universities, obviously. Uh, in other words, if you wanted to know what Ray Tanner and Will Muschamp were talking about the few days before they signed a contract, you could freedom of information the emails to see what sort of correspondences, because once again, taxpayer dollars are are in play, freedom of information to the American um, taxpayer. So when you FOI, you would normally say to the government agency, your freedom of informationing, you would normally say, I want to see all the emails between or all the emails that have been sent or received from Hunter Biden, Devin Archer, Eric Sherwin, and Joe Biden. But you probably wouldn't include in the list Robert L. Peters. But it, it, to me, it's it's to avoid you know, the, um, the freedom of information laws that apply to government agencies and anybody accepting um, public funding. Comer specifically request, or requested all unredacted documents and communications in which then-Vice President Joe Biden, and for some reason he caught wind. I mean, let's give Comer some credit. Or whomever, whomever is heading up the investigation in the, uh, in the Ways and Means ran across the name Robert L. Peters. Who is Robert L. Peters? And I think they begin digging. And, I mean, once again, this is speculation. We don't know if this is factually correct or incorrect. We don't know. But, but assuming it's not, uh, assuming it's true, uh, assuming it's not factually incorrect, the, the obvious next question is why? W- w- why did Joe Biden do this? I mean, I, I don't care if your IQ is 40. You can understand this. I mean, if a guy who is the sitting vice president of the United States, who's, who has said, now, now, and here's what we've done. You ready? We've gone from there was no connection whatsoever between Biden and his son's business to, okay, th- th- there was a connection, but it was innocent. It was illusionary. I think there is the word. It was illusionary. I mean, it was just the illusion of influence. Innocent, um, not intended to harm anybody. Uh, I'm talking about the weather and, uh, I guess, climate change's effect on on the weather. Um but but now we have speculation once again. Is it true or not? Don't. But if this is true, it's done. I mean, you've got to be an absolute in the tank hack or a moron to not believe Joe Biden's corrupt. A thousand times more corrupt than Joe Biden. Excuse me, than Donald Trump ever thought about uh, being. I mean, you're talking about treason and bribery. I mean, that's exactly right. what we're talking about here. Um, now, now once again, we've got, and I'm ready to say this. You ready? We've got a racist prosecutor in Fulton County, a racist, okay. an extreme racist, is the prosecutor in uh, in Fulton County. Some news broke yesterday. She wrote an article in Time Magazine years ago um, when, when they kind of, um, you know, said uh, that they wanted to highlight some of the minority legal um, movers and shakers. She was on this list. She recounted um, how many f- times her father had been arrested as a member of the Black Panthers. 
civil unrest and whatnot. So, um, I mean, she's a she's that's, that's a funny, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Take a load off Fanny. You right. call her Fanny. I'm calling her Fanny because it's not take a load off Fanny. Right. And for effect, we're going to take a load off Fanny. <laughs> but you're right. I mean, her, her, I think the proper pronunciation of her name is uh, is Fanny Willis. But um, but she's a racist. I mean, there's no question about it. When you read some of the articles, I think somebody yesterday said deep-seated hate. Um, so who would you hate more than, I mean, if she's bought into this narrative of Trump's a racist, you know, he's a white supremacist and white nationalist and all these other sorts of things. So they do kind of play into one another. Um, now, now, here's an interesting political figure. And here's where we'll find out how strong America First is or not. Um, there's a state senator in Georgia named Senator Colton Moore. He has written a letter to Governor Brian Kemp in the state of Georgia. He wants to launch an impeachment inquiry. He wants to have an emergency session. And I read the letter last night. I'll read it to you. We, the undersigned, being duly elected members of the Georgia House of Representatives and Georgia Senate and compromising three-fifths of each respective house, pursuant to Article 4, Section 2, Paragraph uh, 7, uh, hereby certify to you in writing with a copy of the Secretary of State that in our opinion, an emergency exists in the affairs of the state requiring a special session to be convened under that selection or that section for all purposes to include without limitation review and respond to the actions of take a load off Fannie Willis. So there's one Republican in Georgia willing to play offense. I mean, we've always said, I think of Breeze when, what, what do we do? I mean, what do you do? Yeah, we, we just sit around and take it. We complain. We whine. We gripe. We say how unfair it is. What do we do? Well, I mean, you know, give Senator Colton Moore some some credit. I mean, he's not sitting around taking it like a man, so to speak. I mean, he's fighting back. Now, now where this goes, I don't know. A lot of this is in Brian Kemp's hands. I mean, it, Brian Kemp is a, a governor of a state that has a lot more authority than the governor of South Carolina does. You know, we talk about how legislatively dominated mm -hmm. our state is. Georgia's not that way. Brian Kemp's has not, not enormous executive authority, but he has enough to get something done if he chooses to. And I'll be interested to watch Brian Kemp, who is a national figure. I mean, I think we'd agree to that. Brian Kemp is a nationally known Republican. Nobody knows before yesterday who Senator Colton Moore was, right? I mean, nobody knows that. Now the ball is in Brian Kemp's um, court. What does Kemp do? I will be extremely interested and what transpires over the next 48, maybe 72 hours. When we get back in this chair by Monday, I think Kemp will have declared a path. Are we going to play some offense against a lady who I think is a racist? And I'm ready to say that. I mean, I read the article in Time Magazine. And then once again, there's a couple of other articles out there about, you know, her being a, an, a rising star in the Democrat Party, in the, um, in the, the legal ranks, so to speak. And um, I mean, she ran for office blatantly saying i'm going after trump i mean if given a chance if given an opportunity i'm going to put that skin on the wall you know i'm going to put that hide on the wall so to speak so here we are and it'll be interesting to watch her or how she responds to this but colton moore um didn't hold back i mean he said deep-seated hate blatant racism involved in this but colton moore alone can't do much of anything if brian kemp signs up to play ball here We've got another story in Georgia. We've got a uh, a racist prosecutor going after a a rich, white, somewhat conservative former president, 
Uh, and then we've got a, a legislature launching some sort of investigation or at least an examination into what motivated her to do what she um, decided to do. That, that's kind of the, um, I mean, those are the parallel stories here. It doesn't change the fact that Trump has been indicted under RICO statutes in the state of Georgia. A buddy of mine yesterday came up to me and said, explain this to me. I said, I don't know that I can. No, you did it on the radio, but I, I kind of understood what you're saying. You're saying that the overt acts aren't illegal, and they're kind of admitting they aren't illegal. But if you do so many of them, it, it kind of leads to conspiracy. I said, that's exactly my interpretation of, of what's happening here. Um, and then, you know, you, it's, it's, it's not Which collusion. Well, I mean, it's weak. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's indicting a president, man. I mean, it's not a mob boss. It is dotting a former president and current front runner, one of the major political parties, on RICO laws. But it, it's those laws were created because there's so much ambiguity and abstractness and inexactness, and we're not sure what Al Capone did. We're not sure what John Gotti did. But he's a mob boss. Of course he did something. I mean, we're basically treating a former president as if he were kind of similar to John Gotti and, and Al Capone. I mean, the RICO statute is what we're going after him on. And it's and it's, it's conjecture, speculation. But once again, when you run as a DA or run for the office of district attorney, and you say, you know, if given the opportunity, I will go after Donald Trump. Trump loses her district, so to speak, Fulton County, uh, by seventy, what eighty to twenty, seventy-seven, twenty-three, or something um, thereabout. It's probably good campaign strategy. I mean, in all honesty, I mean, if I'm running for DA in Fulton County. And, and they say, are you going after Trump or not? Yes, of course I am. Uh, on what? Whatever. It doesn't matter. RICO statute. I mean, who can really explain RICO statutes? Nobody. We'll go after him on RICO. Because I would imagine at some point in time, well, maybe not um, in Fulton County, but I would imagine at some point in time somebody says, hey, when you go after Trump, what do you suspect the charges to be? I mean, if you're making these, if, if you're saying on the campaign trail that if given the opportunity I'm going after a former president, I think you owe to the voters what exactly are you going after him on? And and I guess the answer was, you know, this um these overt acts that happen time and time again, but they aren't really illegal. Uh, Miss Fonny, well, they, they aren't, but you do it so many times. And it, it indicates some sort of um a conspiracy here. Now, now I want to be critical of Trump. And damn it. What did I say yesterday? Top of the page, Ref. Top of the page. What did I say? Conclusive report. Yep. Irrefutable evidence. 11 a.m. Monday. Why? I mean, do you remember? Why well, he's do you walked say it back that? Now. He's why, walked it back. Why do he's you canceled, say that? He's canceled the yeah. news conference. And he didn't walk back. I mean, what does the word conclusive mean? It's done. What does the word irrefutable mean? It's done. So why do you walk that back? You, you don't, I mean, if you're going, if you think there's any chance you may walk it back, you don't say the word conclusive. You don't say the word irrefutable. It's just so frustrating, these unforced errors. He believes it. That he, he believes it. What if he believes it have the press conference? Well, he, he said what? His lawyers have, okay. have okay. said. What, what, what did, did his, his reasoning for canceling the news conference is that his lawyers have recommended that they make this a legal filing. The, the, the evidence, put the evidence in the car. Well, if, if they're in that much disarray, if the legal team says that to Donald Trump after he tweets or through socials, whatever he does, conclusive report, irrefutable evidence, th this will be as squirrely as how they defended themselves in 2020. I mean, if it's no more organized than that, 
if the if the the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing any better than that, it, it'll be an absolute disaster part two. I mean that that's where we're. It may be a disaster part two minus the dive Giuliani's hair running down the side of his face. <laughs> that was bad. I mean we could do a little better than that. I think Giuliani be a part of this. Maybe he can find some old you know other older lawyer that that has die running. I mean Trump can. I'm telling you guys, there's a case here to be made. There, there's a convincing narrative that that a lot of Americans will believe in, but you can't do it this way. You can't. You can't. Over deliver, or excuse me, over promise and under delivery, and that's what they've done. But they, they, you know, Sidney Powell, on behalf of Donald Trump, said, "I've got proof the Nicaraguan government, you know, infiltrated some of the voting machines." And I'm like, "What? What? You've got proof the Nicaraguan government, you know, in some way, shape, or form, meddled in the election by altering the voting machine?" Remember when she said that? And what did Tucker say? You're not coming back on this show unless you bring evidence. I mean, you're making these wild accusations. And when I ask you for evidence, you don't provide it. You're not coming back on this show. And it just concerns me that coming out of the gate about, because we're going to be forced to talk about the election as much as we don't like that, as much as I believe we're losing when we're talking about the 2020 election, the case in Washington, and now take a load off Fannie's case in, in Georgia is going to force Trump to create some sort of believable narrative. Mr. Trump, why did you believe the election was stolen? I just did. I just did. I mean, you got to do better than that. Some Nicaraguan government official, you know, and, and some, some um, guerrilla warfare crew from uh, the, these absurd arguments they make. There is a very convincing narrative that the American people will have some faith in if they play it right. But it seems to me, after yesterday's conclusive report, that includes irrefutable evidence that drops 11 a.m. Monday. Trump now said, nah, I forget what I said yesterday. We're, we're going to file this in some of the briefings. That, that may be the right thing to do, but but don't paint yourself in this corner again. And I just, it concerns me that they are no better prepared to tell the story this time than they were last time. There is a story to be told. I wish they I wish they let me tell it. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's as arrogant as I can be. I wish they'd hire me and let me tell the I story. I wish they would too. Instead of um, well, I don't dye my hair and it would be running down my face. <laughs> That's the only promise I can make you. Take a break. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Our number. I want to go back real quick to um the story about Robert L. Peters. Um, <laughs> if this story is true. I mean, this could be the one that begins the unwind. I mean, this could be the story. I mean, there's no excuse. I mean, there, there's no explaining that. I mean, if Joe Biden's using a fake name, you know, to, to, to make sure some of his emails don't get foiled, I mean, there, there's no denying that. I mean, if, there, if there's a, I mean, that, that's obvious. I mean, he's on the take. I mean, you tell you, just shell companies. I mean, there, there's some uncertainty there. Um, you know, granddaughters receiving funds from foreign governments. I mean, I guess you can twist and turn that. But how do you twist and turn, you know, a, a guy using a fake name, a sitting vice president using a fake name, um, not on some confidential government email, but rather one that included his son, his partners at Rosemont Seneca, and the email was between that group and Burisma, you know, so, some of the Ukrainian officials. I, I just, I think that may be a time. And I think this is where we got to really begin putting our heads together That'll be the moment the Democrats start the unwind. 
They'll begin so you figuring think out so. a way. You, yeah, I, mean, I, mean, I, I do. I believe. That's pretty monumental. I mean, if there are legs to this story, and once again, I have no idea if it's correct or not. I mean, Comer says it is. Uh, we'll find out. I mean, there's a process we'll go through to make a determination as to whether that's accurate or not. But if indeed Joe Biden is using a quote-unquote fake name to avoid some of the FOIA, that's a deal breaker. I mean, and I think the Democrats will begin unwinding and trying to find, you know, Gavin Newsom or whomever they believe has a better chance. And and once again, um, can Trump win? Yes. But Biden's the, the guy that I think he can beat. I don't know that Trump could beat a 45-year-old charismatic Democrat. I just don't. I mean, I, I, maybe he can. I don't know. But but I, I'd, I'd much rather run against Joe Biden in his current state and condition than I had, you know, some other younger, uh, more, more, more articulate, more engaged um, more impressive uh, political candidate. And I mean, there's several out there with a D beside their name, just as there are several out there with an R uh, beside their name. But that could be a, um, uh, it could be a change of strategy the Democrats make that would force eventually the Republicans to kind of reconsider who their best candidate may or may not be. A, a story I saw this morning, and I don't fully understand it, Ted Cruz is demanding of Anheuser-Busch um, that they cooperate with an investigation into Dylan Mulvaney. I mean, it is controversial. There's no doubt about it. Bud Light has paid a significant price in the marketplace for making a decision that, you know, uh, insulted many of their consumers. But I don't know what Ted Cruz should have to do with this. I just don't. I mean, if I'm somewhat conservative and I believe that the fundamentals of capitalism and the marketplace addresses bad and good decisions, why in the world does Ted Cruz demand of Anheuser-Busch that they cooperate with a uh, an investigation. Fox News Radio's Ryan Schmelz is in our nation's capital. Ryan, what am I missing? Oh, good morning. So uh, what, what I think is kind of involved here is that Ted Cruz is trying to see if this Dylan Mulvaney marketing campaign was, market, was used to market towards minors. Now, there was a separate review board that is kind of funded by lobbyists within the beer industry that uh, pretty much did their own review of this and found that Bud Light or Anheuser-Busch was in compliance with that review board, but they did have some issues with uh, how Bud Light went about handling this in terms of giving them specific documentation, and that was also included in one of the things that Ted Cruz has been uh, raising concern about is that he demanded these documents from uh, Anheuser-Busch three months ago and hasn't gotten them yet, so he's once again calling on them to, to hand over those documents and help them cooperate with the investigation, and uh, Cruz has kind of justified this by saying that an independent review board run by the beer industry does not make up for congressional oversight. So he actually wants congressional oversight as to whether the Dylan Mulvaney marketing ploy was intended to attract younger drinkers or, or, or I mean, right. I, well, well, one thing that he he's pointed out with this is that, you know, there currently are no laws on the books. Uh, that prevent alcohol companies from marketing to minors. You know, you look at the, the cigarette and tobacco industry, and there's significant regulation uh, for that industry when it comes to how they market and who they can market to, and if they can even market at all. You know, you don't really see cigarette advertising on television, whereas in alcohol, you see it all the time on television. So, you know, right now, the only laws that are on the books when it comes to alcohol, you know, uh, uh, regulating you know how the alcohol industry can 
market to miners is really self-governed by this review board. And that's one thing Cruz wants to look into is whether or not Congress should take up legislation to ultimately do that or not. Interesting. Ron, thank you for your time. Have a great weekend, sir. You too. Have a good one. Thank you. Okay. I understand the the, the situation, but it doesn't change my view. Uh, I, I can't be that hypocritical. I'm See, sorry. It seems just, like a bit of a stretch. Well, I mean, to, to, to me, it is. And, and, and guys, I mean, it, at the end of the day, when you have a child and your child sees the real world as the real world is, you have an obligation to be somewhat of a filter and guidepost. I mean, you've got to be that North Star. You've got to be that 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 lighthouse. You've got to be the person that that you know kind of gives warning to your kids about things out there that that are dangerous. I just don't know. I mean, if Congress had their feces consolidated, and and we didn't have a debt and the government, all the trains were running on time, then okay, maybe let's delve into the business of, uh, of transgenderism and beer marketing. But they've got a plate full of <laughs> other things that I think need to be paid closer attention to. Um, I, I, I get it. I mean, it, it's a little bit of political grandstanding. I mean, it is. I mean, conservative Republicans are protecting, you know, um, young kids from liberal America and, and this craziness that we've mainstreamed and, and normalized. I mean, I understand that. I just don't think that's the role of Congress. I mean, to me, that that's that's parenthood. I mean, that's that's communities. That's you know, that's um, that's teaching young children uh, right from wrong. And and I guess we've pawned off or farmed out a, a lot of our um, our, our pandering, parenting intuition to some of these government agencies. And maybe that's the new normal. I mean, maybe the new normal is when there's a perceived danger out there that you can warn your kid about. No, let's not warn my kid about this newfound danger. Let's insist government intervene in some way, shape, or form. And I just don't, I don't know that I support that. I mean, I just, that, that bothers me. I mean, I understand what Cruz is doing. He's grandstanding. I mean, he's standing up for children. And how can you, it can't go wrong standing up for, um, for children. He knows the issue played well with his constituency. Sure. Right? And, and, and I do believe this. I mean, I do believe it's weird to have a, a transgender marketing beer. But, but I think the marketplace... You know, I mean, it settled that score. I mean, we know the situation in Bev and Anheuser Busch found themselves in. I don't know if you saw this or not, but Billy Bush, you know, one of the uh, one of the I guess before they sold to InBev, I mean, he would have he would have been I, I don't know uh, an, an, you know an heir to the throne, so to speak, of the the conglomerate that is or the dynasty. And I think it's a beer dynasty. I mean, Anheuser Busch is a beer dynasty. We throw around the word empire a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, Anheuser Busch would be a beer empire. Without question, but Bush said, you know, he'd like to buy the brand Bud Light back, and I don't know what he does. I mean, does he have a micro brewery in his in his basement? I mean, does he know how to? I mean, I'm sure he knows how that world works, but it's just I, I don't know. I mean, I understand government oversight. I understand government's responsibility to keep its citizenry safe. I get all that, but it just seems to me, I mean, what 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 Ryan basically said is Cruz doesn't trust one government agency to do the right thing. So this other government agency has got to have oversight over this other government agency. I just think parenting is a big part of this. We, we Once again, um, do you look to government every time your child, I mean, there, there's danger in the world. Newsflash, believe it or not, there's danger in the world. There's sin in the world. There's, there's, um, that there are a lot of things in this world that you want to try and keep your kids away from. But, but what role or response, how far or extreme does government go to protect your kid? I mean, to me, that's the job of a parent. Which it was news to me that Ryan said there are no laws in the books about marketing 
alcohol to minors. Okay, but but how do you? What is what does marketing alcohol? I mean, I, I've never seen a beer commercial on a cartoon, right? And you know, if you go to a website for some of the beer and liquor brands, it'll make you actually type in your birth date. Are you eighteen? Yeah. Are you are you are you twenty one or whatever the, mm-hmm. the the age is? And so I thought that was a result of some sort of rule that you can't go look at a certain you know a liquor brand or whatever website until they at least ask the question how how old you are. Of course, you can put in <laughs> any date you want, so it's not really going to lock you out, but. I figured that was some sort of government intervention about marketing or allowing minors to access that information. I, I, I would imagine. I mean, I, I guess that's um, policing commerce in some way, shape, or form. I just think we're, I mean, e- even we are beginning to look to government in places that historically we've not looked to government in places. Because the, the example you just gave, you know, there's no law on the book to stop the marketing of beer or wine to minors. What, I mean, where is that line? I mean, do, do do minors watch football games? I mean, kids they watch do. college football. Kids yep. watch the NFL. That's right. Um, I mean, it, you know, it, this game has a, you know, 7% of the viewership of this NFL game are under the age of 18. Therefore, you can't advertise alcoholic beverages. It's just don't give government more authority. Let's figure out a way to give government less authority. Let's empower parents. I mean, I understand we live in this world where, a lot of kids don't have parental influences, but they just don't. They, they don't have the guidance. They don't have, as I said a second ago, the North Star or the, you know, the um, the lighthouse, something they can depend on to give them good advice and steer them in in a positive direction. But do you trust government more? I mean, that, that's just bizarre to me that as little as we trust government today, we trust government to do right by our kids and to protect our kids from certain, you know, um, uh, illicit activities in society? I don't. I mean, I just always assumed that was my job. I mean, that's my responsibility. Talk to my kids about, hey, man, there's trouble in the world. I mean, there are things out there that you don't need to know much about. I mean, as you get a little older, you'll develop some opinions. You'll be aware of, you know, the, the pitfalls, the pros and cons. Um, I, I, I just, I, I'm not for Ted Cruz doing that. I mean, I'm just, I'm totally opposed to gover- government overseeing another government agency that that may or may not have done the job as it should have. I just think you've got to, I mean, we have a responsibility as citizens and in, in, in the collective, individually and the collective, to, to, you know, when we bring a kid in the world, he's, he's you know, he's, he's, I don't want to say he's your property, and, and that's a lousy way to say it, but, but he's something you brought into the world. You're responsible. I mean, you're responsible for that kid becoming a productive, independent member of society. And I mean, are we that unsure of ourselves that we want government to keep our kids away from the dangers of the world? No, it's your job as a parent to keep your kids away from some of the um, some of the dangers of the world. And I just don't have any faith in a government agency not doing a good job. So another government agency is going to kick <laughs> this government agency in the ass to make sure it does a better job. Yeah, count me out. Count me out on that one. I'm Ted Cruz. 843-661-0937. Our number takes Mondays to make Fridays. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937. Kind of an interesting, we'll have the national spokesperson for the DeSantis campaign at 905, if I'm not mistaken. Am I right, Josh? That's right. Yeah, the national spokesperson, Carly Atchison, will be with us at 905 this morning to tell us what happened. Uh, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. She, <laughs> no, she certainly had going on to tell us what happened. 
But when you look at, remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about maintaining percentage points and what you got to spend to stay there. Um, We've got kind of an update here. Dollar per percentage point. This is an interesting stat. Um, Ramaswamy, $41,000 per percentage point. Uh, But if you aggregate his spending and where he is in the poll, he has spent about $41,000 per percentage point. He spent less than a million bucks. I think it's $450,000, and he's at about 11, 11 11.5 percentage. Ron DeSantis has spent $830,000 per percentage point. I mean, that, that campaign's just not going anywhere fast. And and I, I this is the Ramaswamy moment. I mean, I'm convinced of this. And I think the reason Tim Scott is spending $6 million in Iowa, he senses this is the Ramaswamy moment. I, I'll say this. I think the, the bullseye, I mean, obviously, if Trump's there, it's a different world. He'll be the dominant. I mean, he'll be the, the, the central figure, obviously. But if Trump's not there, It'll be interesting to watch Ramaswamy respond to incoming. Because I think right. Tim Scott and Ron DeSantis have more to gain by dinging Ramaswamy than they do anybody. And Ramaswamy's been kind of the golden child. You know what I mean? Everybody loves him. He's different. He's unique. Doesn't tuck his shirt in. Talks to pansexuals uh, with civility. But, but, but once again, he hadn't tasted his own blood yet. I mean, he may do well. I mean, he may, he may, you know, be perfectly able to do that. But there's something about people who have never run for office. When you run for office and you're kind of the chosen one and everybody loves you because you're different and you're inspirational and you're all these other sorts of things. And the next thing you know, somebody comes after you and that taste of your own blood and ain't for everybody. I can assure you of that. And I think Tim Scott and um, Ron DeSantis will try and make Vivek Ramaswamy taste a little of his own blood at the debate next week. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Boudreaux in Orangeburg listening to WTQS. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, you know, earlier in the week, this is this is so non-political. And I'll try to make this brief because this is superfluous uh, uh, information. But you, y'all were talking about your podcast being bi-weekly, and y'all had a discussion about what bi-weekly meant. And... Uh, my, my pest control service is billed bi-monthly, which is every two months, not twice a month. So I looked it up, and uh, No Shot Josh is incorrect. According to Oxford Dictionary, bi-weekly is either twice a week or every two weeks, which is a little bit ambiguous and a little bit dumb. But And bi-monthly can be twice a month, or it can be every other month. The English language is just messed up. Anyway, I know it's twice a week uh, for your podcast, but but just to clarify, bi-weekly is quite an ambiguous uh, term because it is twice a week or it is every two weeks. That's according to the Oxford Dictionary. Anyway, that, that has nothing to do with what y'all were talking about, but it's been bugging me since Monday. <laughs> and and, and now that, that explains why I can never figure it out. I can never figure out semi-monthly, bi-monthly, well, we'll bi-weekly, say twice a week. In my defense, it is the Oxford Dictionary, which is from Britain, and who really cares what they have to say? Yeah, we whooped them in the war, didn't we, Josh? Exactly. Yeah, we whooped them, um, so, so who cares what the Oxford Dictionary says? Um, we're having a podcast twice a week. I mean, that, there, there you go. It's uh, Is it bi-weekly, bi-monthly, bi-yearly, bi-annually? I don't It's a, It's twice a week. I mean, we're, we're producing, excuse me, we're, we're doing and publishing one um, twice a week. I think we published one yesterday. We did. For those who are interested in local issues, 
there's a kind of an in-depth with um, District Superintendent Rich O'Malley about a situation he finds himself in somewhere north of a million dollars. I don't think it's fair to say the money's missing. I think we know where the money is. It's just not where it's supposed to be. I think that's the uh, the crux of this of this matter. There's a there's a charter school here in Florence that built a firewall, a, a layer of insulation. Rich O'Malley has autonomy, and the school board has oversight over the charter school, but not the LLC created out of the charter school. And I have no idea how they were able to transfer public funds from a uh, you know a publicly controlled account to one that is not publicly, uh, you know, from what I'm gathering, and I've read a little bit about it and talked to a couple of folks, the school doesn't have a charter, and they're still operating, and they're operating with taxpayer dollars, and there's not a lot the school board can do because, once again, the money was illegally transferred from the charter school banking account to this LLC they created that only, you know, I guess the officials of the charter school have autonomy uh, over and of it. It's north of a million dollars. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, it's about $1.2 million of taxpayer funds that are sitting somewhere, I guess, operating a school. They bought land. They bought buildings. Who are those assets belong to? We have reached out to the AG, and we've got a response that I think they're working on it, but they're not ready to make any sort of public um, comment. I think the Department of Education is trying to better understand, but not ready to make any sort of public comment. And it goes back to something that we talked about uh, last week or the week before, you know, we may take the podcast to begin devoting more attention um, to local issues. I mean, we just, we, we may, I feel obligated. I mean, and I'm talking about state, region, Sumter, Orangeburg, Florida. I mean, this area of the state has become somewhat of a news desert. I mean, I know the Post and Courier are trying to make an impact here. We hope they succeed in that. But, but Rev and I have talked a lot about it, and I, I do feel like we could better serve. In other words, the radio show right now, excuse me, the podcast, as we speak, is an extension of the radio show. It may cease to be an extension of the radio show and, and a little more, ah, dare I say, investigative journalism, but but rather some local issues that matter a lot that aren't getting covered as they should. This is a big story. I mean, it's a million two hundred thousand dollars of your money where it shouldn't be, and the folks that you elected to be in charge can't access the funds. <laughs> And nobody's being formally charged or, or confronted. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 takes Mondays to make Friday. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Breeze, good morning. You're on. Hey, what's up, guys? Dangerous men are immoral. They're bad. Men call white men that work out are racist. Well, that's, that's part of their plan. You know, I was talking yeah, was talking to some people i know a lot of dangerous men and trust me you would nothing you would like better to be sitting with that dangerous man at a restaurant when somebody comes in to that old off cause trouble rob the place you'd want that dangerous man with you at your home and somebody charged in there to try to murder you and your family you want that dangerous man as your neighbor and you want that guy that works out all the time but your government that's trying to make it immoral. A dangerous man, you know, is, is so, is, you look at martial artists, any martial artist, I mean, there's a couple there in Florence, I know a few of them. Those are the last people 
that go out and get in the, that, that are using that ability to be dangerous to hurt innocent people. People like that are there to protect, to protect the people that can't protect themselves. But here in this country now, our government and the woke left wants you to believe that by exercising and becoming strong and self-reliant and learning how to defend yourself, defend your wife and your family and protect your property somehow makes you immoral. But I will tell you, I, I was at the um, Arnold about 15 years ago, and I met Randy Couture. I don't know if your audience knows who he is, but he is a dangerous man. Yeah, he was a mixed martial arts, world heavyweight, and lightweight champion, MMA. And absolutely the nicest human being. I spent a good bit of the evening with him. The nicest, most humble human being you ever met. I've been out with Navy SEALs to say they very dangerous people, but the nicest, most humble people you'll ever meet would never be the person starting any kind of trouble anywhere. In fact, rarely do you see those guys. They're not the guys that are going to be out at a bar at 2 a.m. in the morning bar fighting. So that's just my Friday uh, thought for today, kid. So that tells you to keep working out and get Josh to work out more. And, and Baker, I want 50 push-ups out of you by all the end of the day. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it, my man. Guys, I've said that a thousand times. And He's people keeping look at me, me honest. Funny. Well, I mean, people look at me funny when I say that. There's a war on my masculinity. But there's been a long-standing war on masculinity. And and then you ask yourself, okay, if you're convinced there's a war on masculinity, why? Well, I mean, what is the social expectation of being a man? I mean, I can relate to that. I'm a dude. I don't, I don't know what the social expectation of a woman is. I don't understand femininity. It's complicated. I mean, I've said before, men are jeeps. I mean, if two or three things are going our way, we're pretty good. And they're kind of primitive to be honest with you, <laughs> and money, power, and sex. I'm going to be honest, guys. I'm going to, you know, I, hey, no, it's not that simple, Ken. It kind of is. I mean, if you've got some money, you've got some power, and you're having some sex, and you're a dude, yeah, I mean, th th there's some ancillaries you wish would clean up a little bit. Your kid's misbehaving. Uh, yeah, he's misbehaving, but I got money in the bank, a little bit of power. And anyway, um, am I wrong? You, you're not wrong. No, we're, we're, we're jeeps. We're, we're, yeah. we're, we're, we're not complicated creatures. We just are not. And masculinity, but to me, that is kind of the, the social expectation of being a man. And, and masculine men are going to stand their ground. They're not going to be pushed around. They're not going to be told what to do. So let's eviscerate masculinity. Let's figure out a way to incrementally and methodically take masculinity out of society. Because once again, if we can change the social expectation of a man, if we can, if we can convince men that, um, you know, crying's a better trait or characteristic than going to the gym, you know, and, and eat, eating red meat. I mean, who wants to do that? We need more vegetarian men, right? I mean, am I wrong? I mean, culture has tried to steer, you know, men into a certain direction. Well, there's a phrase called toxic sure, masculinity. I mean, and who wants to be toxic? I don't. Do you? No. So, so we begin to shy away from these generally accepted expectations of men in society. So, yeah, I mean, I totally believe in that. And I'll tell you what happens. When masculinity is in decline, there are certain roles, behaviors, attributes of men that society lacks. And, you know, I'm, I'm not saying men need to be, you know, troublemakers and rabble rousers. 
just to be troublemakers and rabble-rousers. But, but if government has a burning desire to control people, I think they do. You have every right to disagree. But uh, rich men from rich, what, what the guy, what did Oliver Anthony say? Want all the control, want all the power, want all the influence. If they can, you know, create a society of men that have been convinced that masculinity is toxic and I need to be a little more, I need to be in touch with my feminine side. I need to be more reserved. I need to be more uh, approachable. I need to be, you know what I'm saying? I, mean, I need to be kinder and gentler. But but what Bree said, and, and I know people like that. I mean, I know people that could be really, really tough people if they want. They don't choose to be that. And but, I want to say. But you're not going to shove them around. You're not going to tell them where to stand and what to do. They'll confront you about it. You don't have the right to tell me where to stand and what to do. Who do you think you are? That's masculinity. The, to me, that's the social expectation of being a man. What, when somebody doesn't have the authority to tell you what to do, what to say, and where to stand, and you and you 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 refute that. You say, "Look, man, you, who do you think you are? I mean, you don't have the right to tell me where to stand, what to do, who to talk to, and what to say." But but when you take masculinity out of the equation, or you lessen masculinity as a contributing factor to how society conducts itself, people are more likely to stand where you tell them to stand. They're more likely to do what you tell them to do. They're more likely to shut up if you tell them to shut up. And I was going to say, I, I do think masculinity can be toxic. Like I think cheating on your wife is is not a good thing to do. It is not, masculine. But I don't but think that's masculine. That, that's, that's just a preempt. That's, I want to. I mean, that's philandering. Sure, that's but I, I think that toxic femininity is a way worse problem now. I think that's way too rampant. I think it's o- overly emotional and like dwell. It sounds kind of strange to say in the modern world, but I think dwelling on your feelings too much, I think there is a virtue in just pushing through something. I don't have to understand why I'm upset. Just say, okay, I I have a problem or there's there's this obstacle in my life. Let's just keep going. Let's just get through. Well, I don't be, need to know why I feel the way I do. But, but Josh, men and women have been conditioned to believe that if, if they're dealing with some issue or situation in their life that is unpleasant, there, there's somebody to go see, some pill to take, some video to watch. No. Gr- grief is a part of life. Struggle is a part of life. Right. And pain is a part of life. You're not going to escape that. There's no video. There's no book. There's no doctor. There's no pill. You, for, for however long you're here, heartache and pain and grief and suffering is going to be a part of it. You learn from it. It makes you stronger. You, you develop you know, resistance characteristics about, hey, I remember when I had to deal with something, you know, and I, and I struggled, but I, but I plowed through it. I didn't look for some magic pill, magic doctor, magic video, or magic self-help book. I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying medicine's bad. I'm not saying, you know, don't, don't, don't go to videos, don't read books. I mean, of course, some of that self-help stuff inspires you to do better and be better. But, but I, I go back to something you just said. When you said masculinity doesn't mean cheating on your wife. No, but society's kind of been convinced masculinity and adultery are two different things. I mean, they're two completely and totally different things, but society's been con- convinced to believe, hey, that masculinity, you know where it leads. I mean, it, it leads to, you know, multiple affairs, and uh, maybe it does, but but it's not masculinity. It's adultery. And if I could clarify, I just mean, like, masculinity in a purely, like, testosterone. Because you, you, you observe this in animals, like animals with lots of testosterone are promiscuous, they're more violent. Sure. But, you know, like a bull, there's a difference between the 
testosterone levels in a human man than there is in a bull shark. So, you know. <laughs> a, a little. You're right. <laughs> not not much, but a, but, a, but a little bit. Let's go to the phone. Here's uh, Bobby in Hartsville. Good morning, Bobby. Hey, good morning, guys. It's funny y'all should should mention this. I just got through going through McDonald's to get me a, a biscuit, and uh, you had you had the tinted windows, and all of a sudden the window opens up, and this guy says, "What did you order, my love?" I'm like, "What in the world?" I, hey, maybe I need to take some sessions with uh, with Breeze because I thought I looked pretty masculine, but I don't know. <laughs> That's, that's interesting, Bobby. <laughs> yeah. we, we'll never refer to you as my love here on, <laughs> yeah. on Wake Up Carolina. We can, we can promise you that. Look, and, and I know people, oh, here they go again. I mean, here are those crazy conservatives. You know how they are. I mean, they're talking. No, I just, I'm not, I believe this. I believe part of controlling a society is to eviscerate masculinity, to figure out a way to get it out of the equation. Because once again, I think masculinity is defining what the social expectations of a man are. And if they're trying to tell society what to do and how to do it and when to do it, I mean, who's likely to resist and who's not? The most masculine men, right? Exactly. And, and, and I, you know, you're talking about femininity. I can't comment much to that. I mean, I've been married to the same woman for going on 36 years. I, that, that's my and, – and, and when she and her daughter start arguing, I, I don't say a word. I mean, I just get out of there. I run as far and as fast as I can. I find something to do. You know what I mean? Um the, the, the cat needs to be declawed. Uh, you know, the, the fluorescent bulb in the house next door. Needs, I, there's something I've got to do all of a sudden to get out of that. I mean, that, that, that's toxic femininity as far as, I, as I'm concerned. My daughter and her mom's relationship, that's toxic femininity. I don't understand it. You, uh, you know, how can you have that big a debate about what color brown shoes are the right color brown shoes? You know, or uh, closed-toed, open-toed. I mean, I, I, I'm like, whoa, okay, um, I'm out of here. But, but I do believe that if, if and, and some people don't buy this. I mean, some people believe that government is doing exactly what government was intended to do. It's trying to um, maintain civility and order in a society. You know, you drive on this side of the road, I drive on that side of the road. When you finish the 10th grade, you go to the 11th grade. When, when you finish, you know, this job, you go to that job. Uh, but th- th- there's, a, there's a process of which society conducts itself. I don't buy that's just what government's up to. I could be wrong. I've been wrong before. I think government has a burning desire to control people. And, and I think it really goes back, I hate to mention it again, but Badlands. I mean, I think poor man want to be rich, rich man want to be king, king ain't satisfied till he rules everything. I think that is human nature. I don't think men are the only ones like that. I think we're more inclined to be like that. I think we're more um, infatuated with power and, 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 and money and influence and and sex. I mean, I, I believe that. I mean, I'm not saying women don't like those things, but I think on average, men are more intoxicated by, by those sorts of things. But society has tried to convince men that, that you know, getting in touch with your feminine side m- makes you more relatable, makes you a better person. Well, if you get in touch with your feminine side, you, you're, you're casting aside your masculinity, your natural masculinity. And, and I just think the, the more feminine men are, the more likely they're to do what they're told. I don't have any scientific analysis. I don't know where to go to find a scientific analysis, but I've lived for about 60 years. I've observed, I've participated, I've made mistakes, I've got some things wrong, but out of that comes the conclusion that we live in a world today where people 
And, and I go back to Oliver Anthony's song. I, mean, I think it's named so appropriately. The rich men north of Richmond want to control everything. And the best way to control things or get that element in society that is kind of hard to control. And when you really think about it, it's masculinity. I mean, that, that would be challenge number one. If we want to control society and 48% of society are men, then, then let's figure out a way to convince men that masculinity is toxic, it's dangerous, it'll get them in trouble, you'll be committing adultery, uh, you, you know what I mean? You'll get thrown out of bars at 2 o'clock in the morning. I, I just don't buy that. I, I, just, I, am, I am totally, totally convinced that, um, that the more masculinity we have in men in America, the better nation we will eventually end up with. And I think if masculinity is in decline, America's in decline. If masculinity is on the, on, on the upswing, I think America in general is going to be uh, on the upswing. 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Hartsville. Good morning, Joe. Yeah, good morning. It's, it's not just masculinity, guys. It's, it's everything we know as a, as a nation that holds us together. They're changing men, women. They don't want to call them women anymore. They won't call them egg producers. I mean, they're changing everything. And Barack Obama, Michelle Obama said we have to change our language, our history, our way of doing the Constitution. They're going after the First Amendment. They're they're trying to lock people up for being Catholic. They're locking up parents for wanting their kids to have a right education. They're, they've they've pierced the attorney-client privilege. They've done away with executive privilege. I mean, they're burning it down to where they better hope they never lose. And that's what worries me is because you remember Joe Biden gave us that executive order where all the government agencies help register people to vote right after he got elected. And they don't seem very concerned about losing. I mean, when you've got that much power going into elections, and if, if you notice 20, $20 million has gone against DeSantis and only eight against Trump. And why is that? You know, he's, he's going, they're going to demonize anybody that goes against them, period. They, they preach all the time about paying your fair share. One of the first things Biden did was create an LLC for his book revenue so he wouldn't have to pay Medicaid, Medicare taxes. And, and his son, Hunter, doesn't pay taxes on the millions of dollars. I mean, they're... They're gaslighting us and lying to us when you get 51 reputable spooks say, oh, that laptop was a Russian. They they flat out lied to us because they knew it wasn't Russian disinformation. So we're being lied to as a nation. They're trying to change everything we know, and people better wake up and understand if if you can't figure out whether to vote for Biden or, you know, like he said, if you don't know whether to vote for me or Trump, you ain't black. I mean, you're not alive if you don't know whether to vote for Biden or somebody else. 
Y'all have a good weekend. Thank you, Joe. See, I believe we're going to be forced pretty soon to make a decision. I think the Democrats are going to dump Biden. I mean, I, I really believe. I, I, I'm convinced of that. I mean, he's not. He's not real smart. He's not real competent. He's not real diligent. He's in decline. I mean, he's got all these cognitive issues. Add that, and he's all of a sudden a political thug. And, and you know, if this story is true, Robert Peters. I mean, if that's true, he's done. If if that's the truth, I don't care how much you despise Donald Trump. You are an absolute moron to cast a ballot for a guy who says, I know nothing about my son's business. I do know something about my son's business, but I never I never got involved. Maybe there was an illusion here, maybe not. And now we're ending up whether or not he had a pseudonym, you know, and, and, and a kind of an alias. He was Robert L. Peters. Um, I was thinking about George on Seinfeld, you know, uh, Art Vandelay. Uh, <laughs> remember, remember that? Yeah, I'm Art Vandelay. Anyway, uh, <laughs> It would be a Seinfeld character or an episode of uh, of Seinfeld, but um, but but I mean, if if, if we if we and we don't know that. I mean, I want to be careful. We know that he was more involved than he said he was. I mean, we know that. I mean, he said, "I know nothing about my son's business." We know he's a liar. I mean, I think he's a crook. I think he's a thug. I think he's a a treasonous and uh, you know a treasonous former vice president, current president who bribed or took bribes in the name of peddling influence. I mean, that's what I believe. It doesn't matter what I believe. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't have the right to indict. I don't have the right to impeach. I don't have the right to investigate. I've got the right to give my opinion, and I aggressively give my opinion about Joe Biden. I think he's a crook. I think he might be the biggest crook in modern American history. I think he's a bigger crook than the Clintons. I mean, at least the Clintons created a global initiative to kind of launder money. I mean, they laundered money, but at least, and they peddled influence. But at least they were smart enough to kind of create some freestanding, you know, the Clinton Global Initiative. You know, we're, we're going to advance humanity in such a, a good moral way. Well, I mean, that, that's political prostitution. And I said yesterday, and I'll stand by the comment, I think to call the Bidens political prostitutes is an insult to prostitution. I mean, I really, <laughs> they're thugs. I mean, they're, they're political thugs. But, but some people still aren't going to vote for Donald Trump. They just aren't. That they'll vote for. I mean, maybe you write in Robert L. Peters. I mean, maybe, you know, if if Joe Biden's name on the ballot, maybe instead of betting vote for Biden or Trump, because we hear a lot of people don't want to vote for either. Maybe you write in Robert L. Peters. I think I'll write in Art Vandelay. Yeah. <laughs> Art Vandelay. Take a break. Back in a few. I'm a little nervous. Yeah, me too. If I see her, what do I say that I'm doing here in the building? Oh, you came to see me. I work in the building. What do you do? I'm an architect. You're an architect? I'm not. I don't see architecture coming from you. I suppose you could be an architect. I never said that I was the architect. Just something else. Right, so she's not even going to ask. If we see her, which is remote. Well, what do you want me to say? I just wandered in here? We're having lunch with a friend. He works in the building. What is his name? Bert Harbinson. Bert Harbinson. Bert Harbinson. Right. It sounds made up. Okay. All right. Um, Art Core. Art Core. Valet. <laughs> Core Valet? Yeah, right. What does he do? 
He's an importer. Just imports, no exports? He's an importer-exporter, okay? <laughs> Lane ever call you back? No, I guess she's still mad. I don't understand. You, you, you never talk to her about other women? Never. Wait a second. That's her. On the right. I forgot who I am. Who am I? <laughs> You're you. We're having lunch with Art Corvalet. Vandalay. Corvalet. Let me be the architect. I can do it. I can do it. <laughs> So there's Art, Art Vandelay. Uh, and, and the reason we played that, guys, is the oversight, excuse me, the uh, yeah, the oversight committee, James Comer, believes that they have found some evidence that Joe Biden used a um, an alias, a pseudonym, um, not Art Vandelay, but rather Robert L. Peters. So that was the first appearance ever on Seinfeld of Art Vandelay. <laughs> this is the first time uh, that I've heard of that a former American president named Joe Biden is going by the name Robert L. Peters. So um, Robert L. Peters, Art Vandelay, who's keeping um, score? Let's get back to Trump for a second, because there are many Americans that believe, um, and I think the majority of Americans believe Trump probably did something wrong. I hesitate to say illegal. Probably something wrong, yet most believe that the investigations are absolutely politically motivated. Political analyst, author of Counterpunch, he's a conservative political commentator. Floyd Brown is with us. Mr. Brown, good morning. How are you, sir? Uh, it's great to be with you, Ken. So how do we put that to bed? How, how do we stew over the fact that most Americans, Republicans included, believe that Trump did something wrong, but the investigation was indeed politically motivated? Well, first of all, it shows you the effectiveness of the strategy of um, weaponizing the Justice Department. It's a strategy that works. And so, you know, Washington, D.C. has been doing everything it can since the day Donald Trump was, uh, you know, uh, sworn into office to try and bring him down. And uh, they've used the justice system to do it. And it's, it's an effective strategy. So, you know, uh, people always say if there's smoke, there's fire. And, and uh, when people hear over and over and over again on the news that uh, Donald Trump's done something wrong, then uh, they start to believe it. And it's an effective strategy. Floyd, the, the, the campaign will require certain a certain percentage of independents to vote for Donald Trump. It's obvious the indictments are not driving a wedge between Trump and his core supporters. In fact, I think the indictments has increased, have increased the enthusiasm of Trump supporters. But how do you think it plays out in independent land? Amongst uh, We just played a Seinfeld clip. The Seinfeld watcher in Pennsylvania, the Seinfeld watcher in Georgia, the Seinfeld watcher in Nevada and Arizona. I mean, do, do we have any data that shows that independents may believe he did something wrong, but they do believe it's politically motivated and they'll give Trump the benefit of the doubt? So, you know, I, I have told people for years now to understand what a politician's doing. Don't listen to what he says. Watch what he does. And I think that it's very clear if you look at it, the Republicans won't do anything to Joe Biden. They're not going to impeach him. Uh, they'll have a lot of investigations, but they won't really make a move against him. And so as a result of that, uh, I wouldn't expect a lot to happen to Biden. But the entire establishment of Washington uh, from both parties is focused on bringing down Donald Trump because he threatens their way of business. Lord, can he survive? 
Uh, well, he has been able to survive. It's amazing to me how he has not only survived, but uh, he has continued to go on. I can tell you as a person, I couldn't handle the type of incoming that this man has had the fortitude to be able to, uh, to, 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 to handle. So I, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm always amazed at, uh, uh, what he is able to, uh, withstand. And it, uh, it's amazing to me that he is still standing after having both sides against him. See, people need to understand the reason they won't hold Biden accountable is because they all do what Joe Biden does. The entire Washington is built on influence peddling. And, uh, you know, go back to Eisenhower. Eisenhower warned us about the military industrial complex. From that warning on, America has not won a war. And the reason we haven't won a war is because that's not what we try to do anymore. We try to stay there as long as we can and burn up as many armaments as we can. And it's all about profit. And, uh, and so they get rich in D.C., and the rest of the country is getting poorer and poorer and poorer. Well explained. Mr. Brown, thank you for your time. Have a great weekend, sir. Okay. Bye-bye. And see, when you go back to the 10 wealthy zip codes and the, the areas around Washington, what are they making? What, what are they producing? I mean, is it natural gas? Is it coal? Is it automobiles? Is it, um, is it jets? I mean, you know, economies are predicated on, you know, produ productivity. And, and if Washington's only asset is influence and people are getting wealthy in the collar counts around, how do I mean, everybody's influence peddling. And, and I, I, mm -hmm. I still believe what Mr. Brown said is correct. I mean, that's why you don't hear much out of McConnell. How does McConnell have a net worth of $35 million? I mean, that's he and his wife together, um, $35 million. They've been in government for what, 30, 40 years? I mean, it's, you know, I know Biden is the central figure because he's the guy that Trump's trying to, to beat to become president again. But, but think about it in, a, in, a, in, in, the, in the Rust Belt, the heyday of the Rust Belt. I mean, everybody was doing fairly well financially. Why? Because they were making a lot of cars and people were buying cars and good jobs were there. Um, go to Seattle, Boeing, I mean, the, the Seattle economy and, and, you know, some of the Dreamliner. I mean, I know they moved a lot to Charleston because of labor issues and, and union negotiations. But, but there's an understandable, quantifiable value to that economy. We make jets. We make, um, we're in the natural gas business. We're in the oil business. We're in the automobile business. We're in the widget business. Um, we're, we're the semiconductor manufacturing hub of the world. What does Washington produce? Yet, it has the most affluent zip codes in all of America. And it produces absolutely nothing. It sells your government to the highest bidder. That's how people get wealthy in Washington. Let's go to the phone. And Donald Trump threatens. Yeah, some sure of he that. does. Charles in the mark. Good morning, Charles. Good morning. Main reason I called is because I have had uh, terrible, persistent pain for about five years, and I'm looking for a way to get my life back. And um, I think y'all uh, advertise a product that'll help me do that. But anyway. <laughs> No, I finally got Charles, I'm the I'm the only talk show host not in excruciating pain. I, I feel good <laughs> this morning. In case you're you're wondering, I don't need something to give me my life. Unlike back. Sebastian Gorka, yeah, he couldn't even that's, pray in church. That's, he can't even pray in church, poor fellow. <laughs> and 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 that's because you work out all the time. So you work out like a fiend, and and all he does is like me, he enjoys buffets. So that's got a lot to do with it. 
I finally got an opportunity to peruse the indictment from Georgia. And I'm going to tell you something. Uh, Take a load off Fannie needs to be impeached. I agree with you, Ken. There is not one single criminal act in that entire indictment. Not one. It is strictly what he tweeted And because of that, he's furthering the conspiracy, and that's an overt act. That's just ludicrous. Um, And I'm going to encourage your listeners to take time to look over that thing, because guys and gals, what, what Ken has said is absolutely correct. There is not one single crime in that entire indictment. Uh, y'all have a great weekend. Thank you, Charles. Appreciate that. Yeah, the the indictment alleges, and and I tried to explain it the best way I know how. And I know I'm talking to the majority of non lawyers, a non lawyer speaking to non lawyers, but but it alleges this vast conspiracy, and they're saying 161 overt acts led to a conspiracy. There's no doubt Trump believes he won Georgia. There's no doubt Trump did things to try and you know um uh, over, I don't want to say overthrow to overturn. I mean, that'd be a better one. Overturn, reverse would be an even better one. Reverse the outcome of the 2020 election. There, there's no doubt about that. I mean, he's unapologetic in that. Um, that's not disputed. Trump made attempts to reverse the outcome of the election in Georgia. The indictment is saying that there were 161 overt acts. I'll read Overt Act 1. You ready? And it just, I mean, is, is this again and again and again and again? And they're arguing that this is in violation of Georgia's RICO statute, um, but but all the overt acts are legal. I mean, you tell me. It doesn't take a lawyer to realize. Here's Overt Act 1. You ready? I'll read it verbatim as the indictment alleges. I mean, this is their words, not mine. This is take a load off Fannie and, and what she decided to put in the indicting documents. On or about the 4th of November, 2020, Donald John Trump made a nationally televised speech falsely declaring victory in the 2020 presidential election. Approximately four days earlier, on or about October 31, 2020, Donald John Trump discussed a draft speech with unindicted co-conspirator Individual One, whose identity is known to the grand jury that falsely declared victory and falsely claimed voter fraud. That speech was an overt act in furtherance of the conspiracy. In a nutshell, that's the indicting document. It's that over and over and over again. There have been many claims of voter fraud. We talked yesterday a little bit about the State Farm Arena and these two ladies that hung around after everybody was asked to go home. Supervisor said, we're done counting tonight. Uh, we're, we're leaving. But but that's that's the crux of the matter. And what, take a load off, Fannie is arguing in these, um, in these 41 counts that include 161 overt acts, what she's arguing is, well, you just can't say it that many times. I mean, you just can't keep saying the same. You know it's a lie, and you keep and you keep saying it. Well, I mean, you know, um, I'm the greatest radio show host ever. Say it again. I mean, I'm the greatest radio show host ever. <laughs> Rush Limbaugh wish he were as good as I was. I mean, is that a crime? Is that illegal to say? It's not the truth. I realize it's not the truth. But am I committing a crime if I say that I'm the greatest radio show host ever over and over and over again? What if what if I what if I run of an ad on the um, on the Dan Bongino show? 
Dan Bongino's the second greatest radio show ever. You should listen to the greatest radio show ever. I mean, is that a conspiracy? Am I trying to convince a lot of others that Bongino's not? I mean, it, it's absurd that, that we're, we're, we're criminalizing the questioning of an election. What we played five minutes of Stacey Abrams. I'm not accepting the outcome of the election. I didn't lose the election. Uh, Brian Kemp didn't win the election. It was four minutes and 52 seconds of just over and over and over and over her saying that she didn't lose the election. Now, now I think Trump has stumbled, and I think Trump has done a lousy job of explaining to the public the, the, the ground he stands on. I mean, I said, I told yesterday, day before, day before that, hire somebody who knows how to tell the story. You don't. The folks you've hired don't. We've already got a somewhat of a dilemma on our hands now. First, I mean, I, I got a rundown sheet that I kind of make notes to myself. First thing on yesterday's page, conclusive report, irrefutable evidence. Why? The why is my word. Why say that? Why not say tune in at 11 a.m. on Monday for some news we think you'll find unbelievably interesting? Because most of America hadn't seen the tape, the video footage of the State Farm Arena when the supervisor said, everybody go home. And two ladies hung around and counted somewhere between twenty and 40,000 votes. Were they legitimate? I don't know. I don't have any idea. But, but those two ladies have never been cross-examined. I mean, they've been interviewed by NPR. I think they've been interviewed by, I mean, they were star witnesses at the January 6th Commission. But they've never been cross-examined. Trump's going to have a chance to tell the American public why he has said over and over and over again the election was stolen. But I'm afraid they're going to do it as bad this time as they did last time. And that's not going to help him get elected president again. Take a break. Back in a few. Today's Mondays to make Fridays, 843-661-0937. Go to the phone. Someone's there. Dale in Florence. Morning, Dale. Morning, guys. And, Ken, while it may be not exactly truthful for you to claim to be the greatest radio host ever. If you claim to identify as the greatest radio host ever, that's a whole new banana to, to, to peel. <laughs> so you're, you, you can get away with that bad boy. Um, you just have to identify as, as being better than Rush Limbaugh. There you go. The rest of us will still know you're nuts, you know, just like the rest of the identifiers, but we won't say it to your face. Um, <laughs> Here's a question I've got. There's a couple of things going on. Now, of course, the Democrat Party has totally routed the Republicans again. I mean, the timing of all this stuff on on Trump is going to make it – I don't see how he can run a successful uh, campaign. I mean, we're talking about, what, 15 months? The election's in 15 months, and we got to go through four trials and the associated appeals i just I, I i don't see how you can do that now here's here's a question i have and you guys may have already discussed this i don't get to listen to you quite as much as i used to but um if trump is convicted on any of these and he appeals all the way up to the supreme court in a Basically, a, a Trump-appointed Supreme Court overturns his convictions. How bad do they start burning it down in these uh, blue states in Washington, D.C.? Do we see the 
the rioting again and the fires and the, the, the deaths. Um, I can't think of anything that would piss people off more uh, on, on the left than Trump getting convicted of some of these and his Supreme Court cuts him loose. What do you guys think about all that? Thank you, Dale. Appreciate that. My, my concern has been they're not federal charges. These are state charges. Remember the Constitution says that, you know, the states are in charge of conducting um, their elections. That's why I'm worried about this one. Remember, Mark Meadows is trying to get his case moved to a federal court. I would imagine, I think Trump's already filed some legal documents. I mean, that, that's my concern, that you're is home cooking. I mean, Fulton County, Georgia is not where Donald Trump wants to stay in trial. Now, now, to Dale's other point about not being able to campaign, I would argue that the trial is the campaign. I mean, it really and truly is the campaign. That's why I'm saying Trump needs to find people who understand how to tell a story, how to um, weave a narrative, how to, I mean, it, I hate to say this because I opposed it when the January 6th commission hired one of these movie producers to come and, and, and create a production. I think Trump has to understand that a lot of people who aren't normally interested in politics are going to be keenly aware of what's happening and he's not going to get favorable treatment. I mean, he's just not. I mean, it, you know, the media is going to show you the low points of Trump's defense and the high points of the prosecution. In all these cases, you can expect CBS News. I mean, if Trump tells a story and the story makes sense, the news is going to figure out a way to not tell tell that story. But he's going to have no choice. The trials are going to be the campaign. I mean, it, it is. I mean, I, I would imagine he's still going to do events. He's still going to raise money. He's still going to do debates. He's still going to be the nominee. But the the trial is what most people will pay closest attention to. Find some quality, competent storytellers and tell a story that independents find believable. Back in a few. I've been selling my soul, working all day, overtime hours. Bullish pay so I can sit out here and waste my life away. Drag back home and drown my troubles away. It's a damn shame what the world's gotten to for people like me, people like you. Wish I could just wake up and it not be true, but it is. Oh, it is living in the new world with an hope. Look out for miners, and not just miners on an island somewhere. Lord, we got folks in the street, ain't got nothing to eat, and the whole beast milking welfare. Well, God, if you're five foot three and you're 300 pounds, taxes ought not to pay for your bags of fudge rounds. Young men are putting themselves six feet in the ground, because all this damn country does is keep on kicking them down. Lord, it's a damn shame what the world's gotten to for 
People like me, people like you, wish I could just wake up and it not be true, but it is. Oh, it is living in the new world with an old soul. These rich men know the rich men. you do and then I don't think you know but I know that you do cause your dollar ain't ish and it's taxed to no end cause the rich men know the rich men Selling my soul, working all day, overtime hours for bullshit pay. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. Uh, Oliver Anthony, I told Rev this morning, Oliver Anthony's probably going to have um, somebody digging through his world. I would imagine somebody's been assigned to the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, CBS, ABC, NBC to find out if he's ever done anything wrong. Mm-hmm. And, and then they'll try to bring a guy down. Um, Senator Mike Rickenbaugh, Representative Philip Lower with us morning. Jay Jordan is out of town. Um, I mean, I, you guys said you hadn't heard. You've heard of the song, but haven't, haven't heard the song. Um, I'm arguing that it's somewhat of an anthem. And, and I've said, Mike, I'll start with you. And, and this has nothing with Columbia, nothing with local politics or state politics. None of us are rich men north of Richmond. We know exactly who he's talking about when he says the rich men north of north of Richmond. But but I, I've tried to argue that the Republican Party is having its hippie moment. And we kind of sort of ain't accustomed to having hippie moments. You know, um, Woodstock wasn't a bunch of Republicans, conservatives getting together. It was a kind of a counterculture revolution, no doubt. But it was, you know, kind of the liberal hippies. Mike, um, when you hear that song, I mean, it's 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 haunting. I mean, it really, and, and I think it's. Um, I mean, I, I know from where I come from, it is very relatable, extremely relatable. That that a lot of Americans believe. Once again, the rich men from Richmond have, you know, backed them in a corner, and 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 the body politic has not been very kind to the average American worker. I'm not I'm not necessarily saying, hey, me, uh, critique the song for me, but what, what comes to mind when you hear that song? Um, first of all, thank you for playing that, because I have never heard. I've heard of people talking about it, but um, I've never heard it, and it is haunting. It's a good word. Um, I think the word absurdity is what comes to mind, Ken, and that's because y- you listen to him sing that, and you listen to the words and the sentiment behind the words, and I don't think anybody in this room could disagree with that. I don't think any true American could disagree with it. Um, but it's absurd that in this nation that I think has become such a, a beacon on a hill, I mean, such a testament to what men and women can achieve if given an opportunity, 75 million plus people said, we think Joe Biden's the right guy to lead us. And probably another 70, 75, we don't know the exact number. We know that there's not all the is what it seems, but we know 70-some-plus million people said he's our guy. He's contrary to everything in that song. He's a man who's lived by graft and by influence and by peddling that influence. 
for decades. And folks in the tens of millions said he's our one. So I say absurdity, and it does concern me. I think our nation may very well be coming to a divide where it is going to be like conservatives, and not conservatives because it's the flavor of the day, but true conservatives who want to fight for what made our country greater on one side. And then you're going to have those that think Joe Biden is the right guy on the other side. And I'm not so sure we can coexist because you can't come into our homes and take our cars and our bags and go into it. If you came into your building in double A or my dealership or Phillips, you know, businesses, and, and they decided to ransack it by sheer force, dozens of youths, we wouldn't sit back and be like, well, that's just the day we live in. They must not have had good daddies at home. That's not okay. Philip, do you hear frustration? Do you hear anger? I mean, what do you hear in that guy's voice? Yeah, I do. I'd, I'd, I'd like to just quick little story about my, my daughter. She had a W-2 that came and I had to help file her taxes, right? And she's like, well, I'm so mad they took. And I said, well, let's figure out how much they took. And of course, she's young, just made a small amount of money and she made 3% of her taxes, 3% of her taxes, okay, went to the federal government. And she was upset. I said, welcome to the Republican Party. Because you're going to be upset because steady as you make more money, and she will, she's going to be a pharmacist, so she's going to have a decent living. But she's going to grow stronger and stronger. Now, she's been at Carolina, and she's been influenced by this, you know, this woke world and and. You know, on one hand, she's fussing at me for this or that, but on the next hand, you, you hear that conservatism coming out. We've got that conservatism. All of us have it in here. We know that the rich man in Richmond has too much power and that he was never supposed to have that kind of power, that it was the state's responsibility. They've trampled over our state constitutional rights. We've got to gain it back. I mean, Trump may be the only person with the kahunas large enough to fight back, but the man's got so many federal agencies against him right now, the full power of the federal government against that one man that I don't know, can he fight through it? Can he restore it? Because there is an emotion out there right now. They hate the government. I don't know anybody hates government worse than me. I'm in government. I hate the government. I hate it because they're in the way of everything I want to do, telling me regulations of how I have to live and overtaxing me. So, now, maybe the standoff's here. I don't know that it's a it's a physical fight, but you know we were accused of an insurrection there. You know what? An insurrection might be a great thing. Mike, do, going back to the song, and and I mean to to me it's it's kind of a um it's a representation of how the powerless feel. And, and Philip made an interesting point. I mean they have too much control. There's no doubt about that. I mean you're you're in the state senate. And, and, you know, the longer you stay, the more you'll realize how under the thumb we all are of, of the rich men north of Richmond. But, but what advice would the two of you give to the powerless who are frustrated, they're angry, they know who they're angry at, they know who they're frustrated with, but they don't know what to do. They, they don't feel like they can do anything. What to do, Ken? I mean, geez, the uh, the responsibility is with regular people like us. The responsibility to, to take back our nation, and not by force, uh, not by a, a physical insurrection. I mean, men, women lose their lives um, when we cross those lines, but there's other ways to do it. Um, 
voting and not just voting, but making sure our elections are safe and that there is election integrity. I mean, we can go ahead and we can pass bills that are, you know, easy to vote, hard to cheat type of votes and and, and enforce election integrity from a legislative perspective. Um, But we need people to be poll watchers, uh, to be poll workers, uh, to make sure that you encourage others to vote. Uh, I think the responsibility isn't that Joe Biden needs to change. Joe Biden's never going to change. Kamala Harris isn't going to change. Gavin Newsom's not going to change. They will destroy what our nation has become if we let them. I don't blame them because there's always been men and women like that. I blame the regular people into the tens of millions who have said, you know what, let's go that direction. All right, you don't like the fact that, that, that Trump tweets at three in the morning? I don't either. I think it's childish and immature. But I'd take that over a man like Joe Biden who not just is losing his faculties, but would work to destroy what has made our nation great. But there's tens of millions of people who disagree with us. I don't know how you fix that, Ken. But, but, but Philip, what he's saying is stop being apathetic. I mean, engage, mobilize yourself. I, I can't convince 100 other people to do what I wish they'd do, but I can move myself. I mean, I can better invest my time and energy and effort into the body politic, helping um, conservative, like-minded, um, freedom-loving Republicans get elected. I mean, is that something you wish people would do more of, get more engaged in the game? It's kind of interesting. I'll go to a Carolina football game and 85,000 people lose their minds. You know, what's at stake there? A, a win? A win? I mean, I, and I'm guilty of that. I mean, I'm as guilty as anybody. Go to Death Valley. 85,000 people lose their minds, invest every ounce of energy they have in their body trying to pull their tigers through. But when it comes to running the government, well, you know, what, what do I matter? I mean, I can't make it. But, but people can make a difference, Philip. Well, the insurrection starts with registering to vote. I mean, that's where it is. Everything's a vote in this world. Every every state, local, national matter comes down to a vote. And, and the beginning of this voting process is us. If we're not registered, we can't vote. Once we're registered, we got to get out and vote. And we have to influence all the people that we can to get registered and to vote. And and that's where it starts. And, and listen, South Carolina's in pretty decent shape, conservative-wise, but there are states that just aren't. And, and those five states that aren't are basically going to decide it again. They're going to decide this election one more time. And and the Republicans aren't perfect, and especially the federal government. They're, they're so far from perfect, it's, it's outrageous. Well, I can't understand how we've gotten to this point. But look, they've just downgraded our credit. The United States credit has been, they've thrown a dart at us. And listen, I hope it's stuck. I hope it's stuck deep. It's still time to turn it around, I, I think. Um, I don't know where we come up $35 trillion, but we've got to stop digging a hole, first of all. And, and people have to understand that the power and the influence is outrageous in Washington, and it needs to be brought in. We've got to fight back and fight for our constitutional rights through the courts to get it back. And listen, they, they've returned some to the states. Abortion was returned to the states to make that decision. That has got to continue for us to turn it around. Or there may really be a bloody insurrection one day. Interesting. We got a call? Uh, no. Okay, we don't no, have a call. No. I thought we did. 843-661-0937 is our number. Representative Philip Lowe, Senator Mike Rickenbaugh are with us. Let's take our first break, Josh. I didn't mean to get these guys off topic, but that's just kind of an it's a very, it's just an interesting time in American politics that we're living in. Take a break. Back in a few. 
keep it here. The Rev and the Pope of Pamplico will be back after this. This Sean Hannity Minute is brought to you by the Citizens Bank. 843-661-0937 is our number. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. We've got to call. Someone's there. Baron in Hartsville. Good morning. You're on with the delegation. Hey, good morning, y'all. I would like to, um, you know, the, I like the song a lot. I'll start with that. And I, play, I played it on repeat for a while yesterday. So I would counter that America's good at bloodless revolutions. You know, I think about the election 1800 and before Matt, uh, Adams and Washington had both shown up to the inauguration in gilded carriages. And Jefferson wins. And he just walks over from a boarding house and doesn't wear the fancy wig. I think in 1824, when John Quincy Adams and the, and the, the establishment of the day basically steal the election in the House of Representatives from Andrew Jackson, and he comes roaring back to win four years later, you know, we elect people like Teddy Roosevelt and Donald Trump in, in 2016. And so my, my point I would like to put to the delegation more as members of the Republican Party and less as elected officials or as, as you know, grandees of, our, of the state party is that I think what we could do best is party organization. You know, we can spend our time rabble-rousing to get out the vote on game day, but I've never heard from my block captain. I've never met my precinct representative. You know, I'm a, I'm a solid voter, and... And most people aren't contacted. I mean, I get more more texts from a fake Kevin McCarthy trying to raise money for a congressional election than I ever get for a local candidate or for the 7th District. So my, my proposal is that if we were to turn our efforts, we should turn them towards local and state party representatives and party apparatus. I'll take your comments off the air. Thank, Thank you, Baron. Appreciate that. That's, that's an interesting comment. Rev's a big Braves fan. I'm a Braves fan. Rev's a bigger Braves fan than I am. The Braves have historically had a middle-of-the-pack payroll. I mean, other than the Ted Turner days, I mean, Liberty Media owns the Braves, but they finish in the top two or three every year in baseball. They're a well-run organization. I mean, they pay attention to little things. They put competent people in charge of important jobs. They don't have the money the Yankees have, but they just swept the Yankees. They don't have the money the Mets have. They just beat the Mets three or four, and they do that over and over again because they're a well-run organization with smart, competent people in charge. Uh, it, it, it seems to me dividends would occur if we ran our, our parties. And I'm not talking about Rick and Bosch should run his campaign as he sees fit. Lowe should run his campaign as he sees fit. But, but running the Republican Party more effectively from, from Washington to the state, to the local level, Mike, surely that would, I mean, it would, it would move minds in a direction. I mean, we're selling a brand. We're, we're selling an idea. We're selling a vision. It's a binary choice. It's not like going uh, to, to a department store and there's 600 shirts on the, I mean, it's one or the other, and, and we're one or the other. So, so does Barron make sense in that we need to uh, invest and incent people to better understand what we're trying to do? Yeah, I think Barron makes sense for, for two very good reasons. The, the first one is, and I'll refer to Kahaley, I think he's really intelligent on these types of things. And if, if there's skimming and there's there's graft at the the RNC level, at the federal level, then there's very little accountability that we as regular people here in South Carolina can affect at that. What do you say, maybe 25% taken off the top? What do you do with that, Ken? I mean, that's just... It turns a hundred million into seventy five. It million. really does, and it shows where the priorities are. Is it's rich men getting richer, 
and not taking care of the party and moving conservative values. So I think on that one point, um, coupled with the fact that, uh, to Barron's point, in local politics, you have the ability to affect. These are your neighbors. These are your coworkers. You go to school with them. You coach a ball with them. Having the conversation, as we kind of had off air, not talking about individual personalities. What do you think about Donald Trump? Is he a good man? Is he a bad man? Those are conversations that are moving the needle. How about a, are you better off in today's America or are we better off in America four years ago? What's better? What, what nation do you want to see your children grow in? What state are we prepared to have a Portland type of scenario, a Seattle, having those conversations and to Barron's point, having, you know, folks from the, the county GOPs for the local legislators, the county council, the city council, ask people the question, do more asking than talking. Yeah. What's important to you? Safe streets, being able to pump the gas or your wife pump gas and, and not have somebody mug her and take her wallet, your kids not be taught complete falsehoods in schools, being able to have good health care. I mean, being able to take care of yourself and not ask the government to do it. So keep my taxes low, get the government out of way, less regulation. If those are important to you, let's talk about what the, each party believes in. So make it real and not about the theoretical what Washington says we should be thinking about. And Philip, one thing you've tried to do, and you've talked on the air and off the air to me about it, is trying to figure out a way to get more Republicans elected citywide. I mean, that would be a, a, a unique example. I mean, you're a Republican. Um, we don't have proportional Republican representation in city government. It matters a lot. I mean, it's a big deal. So how can like-minded people, I'm not saying help you get that done, but but how could we better, how could we create a better plan and act upon that plan to get more Republicans elected locally? I think you've probably heard me at political speeches right before the election. And I say, you know, one of the most powerful things you have is in your hand is your phone. Your phone has all your contacts, people you know care about you and would listen to your opinion maybe. And, and I'll tell people, you know, the night before the election, get your phone out, text, call 10 people that you think you can have influence that you think may or may not vote each time. You know, it may not, not the guy that's already going to go up there, but take 10 and multiply that 10 times everybody doing their job with their own phone. You, you begin to affect things. That's what the Democrats have done. They have somebody sitting at the table, marking down everybody who's voted so far. And they've got people on the outside calling the ones that haven't trying to get those last minute votes out. They do it, you know, each election, you'll see them sitting at the table beside the, the, uh, computer that's that's restore or recording every vote uh at least who is voting but you've got to have a, a grassroots organization like the republican party that gets its ideas out and that attracts people to it that attracts more than just white men it's got to reach out and touch something emotionally or financially enough to make somebody want to get out and vote mike and I'd never want to over-spiritualize Ken, but if you look, we all have different characters in the Bible that are our are, 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 are preferred people we relate to. You look at the book of Nehemiah, and Nehemiah, he was a regular guy. He was a cupbearer for the king, which means he tasted the wine to see was it poisoned. If it's poisoned, yep, king, don't drink it because I'm dying. And if it wasn't poisoned, so he was a trusted position. When he knew that the walls were broken down around Jerusalem, at that point, the first two things he did, he, he prayed and he fasted. 
And again, I'm not saying that prayer alone is going to fix this, but prayer is a start to say, God, return us to the nation that made us great. Prayer, fasting, touch our hearts, soften our hearts, because you, you lay the foundation with prayer and fasting. And then what did Nehemiah do in his, his groups? They then went to the wall. And if you read the book, in one hand, they had their spears. In the other hand, they had their hoes. They knew they needed to work and they also needed to be prepared to fight because the enemies were there to come at them. So by prayer and fasting, it prepares our hearts. It says, God, return us to the nation you've called us to be. Soften our hearts, lead us, but we doggone sure better be ready to work and fight because there's a very real enemy, a spiritual enemy and a real enemy. And Nehemiah knew it. We're no different today than they were back then. Is that, okay, I'm going to be devil's advocate for a second. And then, you know, um, if we are in a, in a, in a battle, and I think we agree. I mean, yeah. Philip said it a second ago. We're kind of in a, we're in an insurrection era. I mean, it, th- there's a revolution waiting to happen. I hope it's a bloodless revolution. I hope nobody gets hurt. Don't want anything to happen to anybody. I do want power restored to the people. I think that's what we're all talking about here this morning. But if we're going to have a revolution and you're bringing up spirituality, I want to be devil's advocate. For you. I'm going to play Chuck Todd. Yeah. And you're going to let Donald Trump lead this thing? Really? I mean, you know, we're talking about spirituality and, and doing the right thing and morals and ethics, and you've got a guy named Donald Trump, you know, flying the flag higher than anybody else. Your response to that is? Yeah, that's, that's that's the beautiful nature of God. Who was a worse king than Saul? Right? Saul led, Jeru- or led the Israelites because the people wanted a king. And God said, you want a king? Here's a guy named Saul. Take him. Saul was corrupt. Saul lost his mind, tried to kill David. So they asked for him, but God can use good men and God can use evil men. I'm not saying Donald Trump, either of the two. Everybody's got to decide God can use every one of us. But you look down through the Bible, Saul, David, Samson. Samson was a whoremonger, but Samson had a place to play. We all do because we all sin, but we can all be used. Philip, is that what Republicans find so intriguing about Trump? The fact that he will fight. I mean, he may be a crooked stick. But he'll hit you. I mean, if you come after him, Republicans have historically not fought back as aggressively as you and I wish they would. Trump kind of sort of, I mean, he'll, he'll, he'll accept that challenge and answer it. I'll admit, 216, when Trump was elected, late that night, I'm sitting there pondering and just grinning from ear to ear about 3 o'clock in the morning, thinking about how upset Hillary was and all. And I said, you know what? I said, if he can just get Supreme Court straightened out and pester the heck out of Democrats for four years, I'll be happy. Well, Lord knows I got my wish. And and it may have pestered too much because, you know, <laughs> we look right now and you ask. He may he... have pestered too much. That's an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> He's got the entire world after him right now. And I don't know if he can pull it out. That's. If it is, it's, it will have gone so far against him that it became for him. And that's what we're wondering. Did, is is uh, four attacks in four different areas in court, criminal cases, enough for us to say, good God, y'all leave him alone. I'm going to put him back in just so he can mess back with you again. I want to go back to something. I want to stay with Philip a second because I want to go back to something you and I have talked a lot about. Um, you think there should be more Republicans in city government. You talk about the population balance. I mean, this many Democrats, this many Republicans. We're talking about, um, we're talking about organization. We're talking about enthusiasm. Um, is it frustrating to someone like you 
who knows what needs to be done, but people aren't as motivated as they need to be to see it through. I mean, we're talking about annexation. What we're talking about, you know, creating a more balanced pool of voters. You know the numbers. I know the numbers. I know what it takes to allow Republicans to win more elections in our city government, therefore bringing more government that, that might you and I want, but we don't see it through. Does that frustrate you? It does. I, I've brought up a couple of different ways to deal with the under-representation of conservatives in our local government. I think there's one member of city government that's a Republican. One out of seven, yes. And so everybody knows that's not fair. Uh, they've got a court case now that is dealing with uh, not having but the, the one out of seven in our state. And my bet is they probably win that. My bet is if we sued in Florence, we could get something changed on the, on the makeup of our representation. But we hold it in our hands. If we choose to annex and get in the city limits, we can not only vote for our county councilman, we can vote for our city councilman. And maybe, maybe just maybe, you wouldn't have $600 million worth of infrastructure needs that you've left unattended, that you've put Band-Aids on for years and years. But we're going to go through a painful uh, taxation and a painful water bill from the city and the county. And, uh, you know, if you want to keep having this, if you, you want to ignore it again, we fix it, and, and, and then it just completely goes to pot, then it'll happen. We've got sewer flowing through Jeffries Creek, been flowing through there for I bet you 10 years, probably 20 years it's been flowing through there. We hadn't fixed it. VHEC says fix it. We don't have the money to fix it. So they just let it continue. Every time it gets a huge rain, it comes pouring out, goes through our our beautiful streams and heads down to the coastline. Um, we've, got to, we've got to get better representation. Because, Mike, sometimes we get captivated by the Trump-Biden argument or the Bush-Clinton argument or, you know, the um, – the, the national politics kind of rule the day. We talk a lot about it here, but in reality, competent, smart, like-minded people in local government, in state government, at all levels of government, leads to what I call better communities. Yeah, local government has more impact on our citizens' lives than federal government does, and it's it's important when we look at things like the the southern border and our foreign domestic, our foreign policy, and our GDP. Those are all important topics, um, but they're no more important than having good water than being able to wash your clothes and not see dirty brown water. Filling up your bathtub, and you're going to put your child in there and the water comes out dirty. Bad roads, infrastructure needs, no law enforcement. You know, you get certain cities, they, you know, actions have consequences. And if they want to defund the police, then they can live in that lawlessness and anarchy. But in a state like South Carolina, we need to support our first responders, support those who take care of us. But we also need to be good stewards of our tax dollars. And that happens at the local level. This is how we, we hire, we pay, we provide for our first responders, how we keep our taxes low, how there's transparency in government, how there's accountability, how you just can't have millage increases and then say, where are the results of this? Where'd the money go? Those are the questions that are asked and answered locally. Well said. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Welcome back. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. Senator Mike Rickenbaugh, Representative Philip Lowe, with us this morning. Um, I want to call this the legislative update, but we talked a lot about political philosophy and national politics. Um, played you guys a song, <laughs> so we've done some pretty off the beaten path things this morning. Um, it's it's nearly September. I would imagine uh, people will begin pre-filing bills. Philip, I'll start with you. 
Um, what do you foresee coming your way? Anything unexpected? What do you consider the priorities to be as we kind of head off into the fall and, and start thinking about the, the next session of the General Assembly? Well, of course, th- this is the second half of a session. So we, one more year in this session that we're, that we're dealing with. Um, and then, you know, elections would, would come again before we – you can, you don't really pre-file at this point. There, you know, the truth is there's probably 3,000 bills floating around up there that are sitting in the drawers. There's, there's plenty to do. There, there's, <laughs> there's a lot to consider and all. I mean, I think we're going to be a little more taxed this year. I don't mean by more taxes – but we're going to have probably a little less dollars to deal out. I think the whether it's a small recession or whatever, the, the big influx of money that came from that crazy overstimulus of the federal government has kind of made its rounds for the most part. And I don't expect to have a lot of extra money like we have in, in the last two years. So I'll be dealing with the budget on a tighter budget. Mike in the Senate. Yeah, I think there's going to be continued push to make sure that the law enforcement is is paid appropriately um, for the job they do because there's so many vacancies. Um, it's a tough job, and it's even tougher in today's climate. So uh, we need to make sure we are, are paying them appropriately um, across the state. Um, education from the standpoint of school choice. Um, we were able to go ahead and, and get a small school choice bill done, but um, there's talk of do we take another swing at that and, and give parents more autonomy in where their children are educated and how they're educated, um, and then protecting the Second Amendment. Uh, we still don't have a con- or open carry, I'm sorry, constitutional carry passed uh, through both chambers right now. So um, that got quite quite a long way through the committee process, but I think that'll be taken up sooner than later. Still floating around out there. Somebody on the phone? Yep. Let's go there. Rujan in Darlington. Good morning, Rujan. You're on with the delegation. Good morning, guys. Hey, uh, listen, um, one of the things that I'm finding out here in Darlington is uh, you, you've, you've got to, uh, particularly with the city council, you, you've got to approach uh, the council business, the business of the city from that aspect. You've got to understand that even though, you know, people want to look at it a different way, but you've got to look at, at the city as a business. Uh, you can't use the city and the city workings as an entitlement to, uh, give away to certain people or to withhold things uh, like the, the, the cost of water bills. Um, and, and we've got we've to let people know uh, that it's about business. It's not about, you know, feelings and, and, and everything because you can, you, can, you can have, Mike, you know as well as I do, somebody come in and you, you start selling them a car and every time you sell them a car you feel sorry for them and you drop the price $5,000. How, how long are you going to be in business? Not long. Not very long. <laughs> not long at all. And, and that's what that's what's happening in, in, in uh, I think that's what, what, what kind of killed Tennisville. Um, but uh, we've got to start showing people and, and, and showing people that, you know, like you said, you know, from the Bible standpoint, you had Rahab the harlot. God said, you know, he hated, he loved Jacob, but he hated Esau, you know, and, and so on and so forth. There, there's a, there's a, 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 a give and take, but when it comes to city, running the city, if it's not run like a business, yes, you can be benevolent in, in some situations, but if you don't run it like a business, the city's going to run a deficit and they're going to fail. They're going to be, be lagging behind, like, like you guys got a sewer problem over there. If you hadn't fixed if you went ahead, went ahead and fixed it, and instead of putting it someplace else to appease the, the, uh, your, your constituents, sometimes you got to say no to the constituents and explain to them why you got to say no. But if you don't do that, 
you're going to run you're going to run a deficit and you're going to have a worse infrastructure you're going to have the worst uh you know you have one side of the city that's living fat and happy the other side of the city living living you know living amongst the you know the the uh you know the the peasants like peasants and and then you'll have nobody happy and and then you're you're in you're in quite a situation thank you rujan appreciate that i don't know if that's a question more of a a comment but we've emphasized the importance of local uh, local politics. I mean, it's important. We we get infatuated, mesmerized by the presidential elections. But I'm telling you guys, as both of these folks have said, local politics is where the rubber hits the road. Yeah, and I think his point is very well made that there is a place to have more business acumen in government, state government, local government, federal government. Um, if we in this room aren't allowed to spend money that we don't have without there being a consequence of that, Somebody comes and takes your stuff. You know, you have interest. You pay more later. Like, there's consequences. Then the government shouldn't either. In the same token, if you decide to use your money and say, I'm going to go buy something I really don't need, but now I don't have the money to pay for something I really, you know, really do need, then there's a consequence. And government needs to be transparent and tell consumers and our citizens Here's where your dollars are going because it's not the government's dollars. It's the taxpayers' dollars. Philip, how much do you think being in business has helped you as an elected official? Well, obviously, I've got several different types of businesses, but all of them revolve around being able to spend and live within your means. Uh, And debt will just just carry you down. There's no way when times get tough that you can carry debt so debt's easy when everything's flowing and, and going fast and and really local infrastructure statewide and, and federal infrastructure you've got to keep that up and that's not a sexy vote to take it's a lot a lot sexier to go out here and say oh we got this brand new building and you get to stand up there you know with a shovel in your hand and a little hard hat on like you've done something and, and get your name into paper. But the reality is sometimes you got to repair the roof. You know, sometimes you got to change your plumbing pipes. You got to do something that, that carries forward. And I think the school district learned that they've got to go maintain their existing buildings. We can't just go build brand new buildings, you know, because we want them. We all want that stuff, but you've got to, you got to have deferred maintenance. You can't defer it forever. There's a bottom line. I mean, that's kind of what you're saying. Both of you are saying that. I mean, when you live in the real world, there's a bottom line. There's inflow and outflow, and they can't get so out of um out of sorts, or or the, it doesn't work any longer. Thanks to both of you, and um and thanks to our callers. Appreciate that. I'll, I'll say this again. Um, you get an opportunity in real time to talk to elected officials who don't know what you're calling about. I mean, I, I just think that really and truly is something that voters should be excited to have that chance because most times. Uh, you don't. We don't screen calls, don't vet calls. These guys call it as they see it. Take a break. Back in a few. So you bring an Army Ranger with a badge and a gun, and you tell me to make him wait. <laughs> we we got to talk to <laughs> Anyway. Anyway, we got our honor event. You might better explain. Well, I mean, we got our honor event yeah. here, and we'll get to that momentarily. Right now, uh, we're fortunate to have with us Carly Atchison. She is a national spokeswoman for the Ron DeSantis for President campaign. Good morning, Miss Atchison. How are you? Good morning. How are you? We are doing well. So as national spokeswoman for the DeSantis campaign, um, what, what help us understand um, why you think it's important to call in to, to Florence, South Carolina on this uh, illustrious Friday morning? <laughs> Certainly. Well, first of all, you know, we have been so focused on our state-by-state strategy, and a lot of the times when we're 
holding these town hall events or going to these diners, a lot of folks uh, walk away with the same feedback they didn't know about Ron DeSantis and his story. They kind of know he's governor of Florida, but they didn't know that he grew up middle class, for instance. They didn't, knew that, they didn't know that he lived paycheck to paycheck. He put himself through Yale and Harvard. They weren't aware that he volunteered to serve in the Navy after 9-11, volunteered to go to Iraq and won a bronze star. Um, and so they didn't know um, maybe that he was a husband. They didn't know that he had three kids. And so it's really important to us to get his story out there and to let people um, see and hear about who Ron DeSantis is, why he's running for president. Um, and we, um, I appreciate the opportunity to come on and kind of talk with you guys and share his forward-looking vision. Let, let me ask you a question. Uh, during the early days of the campaign, You've got this 800-pound behemoth that I'll leave unnamed, and you know you're dealing with that. But it was always thought that if someone, if there were fatigue of one particular candidate, DeSantis would obviously be um, the de facto second second choice. And that's kind of sort of where we landed here at Wake Up Carolina. There have been some struggles. Do you believe the struggle has been the inability to communicate his record in, in Florida? Or, or has it been some of the personal issues and some of the some of the nuances of his life that you just introduced to our listeners? I think a lot of uh, what's been spun up is a lot of media narratives from a lot of folks who uh, don't want to see Ron DeSantis become successful ultimately. Uh, think about this. Over $20 million has been spent against Ron DeSantis in this campaign so far. And we're still pretty early. And that number, by the way, is more than Trump and Biden combined. So they, assume, even before he announced he was running, they were already attacking him. Um, and so a lot of that has been what's spinning up uh, the national media. We don't think that that's accurate in terms of what we are actually seeing on the ground. And look, there's no such thing as a national primary. Uh, you have to get on the ground, talk to the folks in South Carolina and New Hampshire and Iowa. These early states are really important. And South Carolina is particularly, particularly important to the governor. Um, not sure if you or your listeners are aware, but Casey DeSantis actually graduated from the College of Charleston. Uh, so they've got some roots there. But he also unveiled his mission first military policy in South Carolina He's the only veteran in the race. And so, you know, we are really focused on, on states like South Carolina. And we think that that strategy is ultimately uh, going to be what's going to make the difference at the end of the day. Republican voters are trying to determine who's electable or who's not. I mean, obviously, we believe that of all the Republicans, none are as bad as, as Joe Biden. Obviously, the voters have, you know, this is my first choice. This is my, my second choice. I've always believed that Ron DeSantis was the most electable Republican nationwide. When you look at independent voters in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Nevada, uh, Wisconsin, Georgia, he is a very appealing and attractive candidate. Have we been able to, has that message resonated? And, and is that a priority of the campaign? You know, I think it's starting to. I think people are um, very, they're, they're open to a different candidate. Uh, we know the nation is in decline. We know Bidenomics has been hurting families, um, you know, as parents are going and sending their kids back to school, even getting school supplies is kind of become a struggle. Right. And so you you absolutely have an appetite for somebody who's going to get the job done at the end of the day. Ron DeSantis is absolutely somebody who has a track record of getting these things done. But to your point, 
you can't get any of this stuff done if you don't get elected. Uh, Florida was a, a purple swing state uh, before Ron DeSantis came into office. And, you know, when he won the first time, it was by a slim margin. But after his bold leadership, he got things done for the people who he served, kept Florida open through COVID. He won by 20 points. And to, to your point, not just Republicans, but even Democrats, independents. Um, and so that is critical because we can't do, we cannot reverse the decline of this country if we don't win back the White House. And Ron DeSantis is the only candidate right now with a proven track record of being able to win by a really large margin. As a radio show host and former elected official in South Carolina, the, the concern that I have amongst all the candidates is the the misinterpretation of how much populism, whether you like it or not. I mean, I'm not asking a question, do you like populism? Explain populism. But it is unbelievably prevalent. It is unbelievably intense. And my concern for all the Republican candidates is they're still not willing to accept how much of that raw energy is in the electorate. And some campaigns are just not addressing it by hoping it goes away. Others are just, uh, am, am I going too far, not far enough? I mean, explain, I mean, am I on to something here? I mean, I'm sure it's in South Carolina. I mean, I, I'm, you know, and I'll give you a little advice. Don't underestimate the amount of populism that is um, kind of um, percolating in the Republican primary in South Carolina. But, but it is a complex situation that candidates find themselves in by trying to be a little bit of this. and a, You don't want to be too much of that, but you got to be enough of that. Is that, is that, do you understand what I'm saying? I absolutely do. And, you know, before this, I was a senior advisor out in Oklahoma for Governor Kevin Stitt, who has endorsed Ron DeSantis. And people thought of Oklahoma as a solidly red state. It's not. It's a very populist state. And so I do think you're on to something. But here's what I'll say. Ron DeSantis is somebody who, from the very beginning, has been a strong conservative. Uh, people forget that he was a founding member of the House Freedom Caucus. I don't know if you guys remember that, but you know, at the time, these were people who kind of banded together, bucked a lot of the D.C. elite party leadership and got a lot of rap for it. Ron DeSantis was in that fight when it came to COVID and the D.C. ruling class telling these different states, here's what you have to do. Ron DeSantis wasn't somebody who went along to get along or was worried about his political career. He looked at the data and asked himself, what's the right thing to do for the people I serve? So he kept Florida open. Um, and so that kind of leadership is um, you can't you can't fake it. Uh, Ron DeSantis has always put service over self. That's why he volunteered to serve in the Navy. Even after graduating with two Ivy League degrees, he could have gone on and done, you know, made six figures somewhere or something. But he did it. He wanted to serve his country. And so um, I think what you're, you're the point you're hitting on is is true. And I don't think there's anybody else in the field right now who has the kind of strong, consistent, conservative leadership, and one that just is really, you know, about getting government out of the way, letting people live their lives, letting businesses thrive and compete. Um, and so, again, if you want a preview of, you know, what the country could look like uh, with a president DeSantis, just look at how Florida's done. Well explained. Um, we extend an invitation. I think there's a DeSantis-associated event happening in Florence in the not-too-distant future. Um, but but he's always welcome to call in, to come by. Um, we certainly consider him a top-tier candidate and a legitimate candidate for president 
of the United States. And as the campaign progresses, South Carolinians always have an important role in picking the Republican nominee. So thank you for your time. And once again, pass along the um, the invite to whomever in charge of the um, of the governor's schedule. We'd love to have him sit down with us and kind of explain his vision, his agenda, and why he thinks he's the, the best candidate in the Republican primary. I absolutely will. And for all your listeners out there who want to learn more, go to rondesantis.com. And yeah, you're absolutely right. The governor will be back in South Carolina later this month for Jeff Duncan's Faith and Freedom Barbecue in Anderson. He's the keynote speaker. So uh, he'll be back in, in South Carolina soon. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. Let's do this, Josh. I don't want to. Man, man's a, 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 a decorated vet. He's got a badge and a gun. I'm gonna take a break. That way, we give him all the time. <laughs> okay. All the time he leaves, and he looks kind of like a badass. And and I think he was a ranger. And anyway, let's take a break and then decide. We'll, we'll do the honor of the vet the way he wants to do uh, the, the, the honor of vet. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of moments. It takes Mondays to make Fridays on this Friday as we do for a period of time during the year. We honor a vet. Uh, we argue about politics. We just had a national spokesperson from the DeSantis campaign. Um, I think RFK Jr., if I'm not mistaken, will be in Florence uh, Sunday at Redbone Alley from 3 until 5. Um, he says some pretty crazy things, but it's America. You're allowed to say some pretty crazy things, um, and you, some people believe some pretty crazy things. In fact, I say crazy things and believe crazy things uh, from time to time. But I've always maintained that the reason we're able to say those crazy things and defend those crazy things and hear other people say other crazy things is freedom and liberty. And the people of the armed forces are the reason that we're continuing to live. Um, and as some say, it's not as free as I want it to be and it's not as liberated as I want it to be, but it's still the best show on earth. It's still the... Um, the greatest experiment in man-governing fellow man that has ever existed, and the men and women in our armed services deserve a lot of credit for us being able to live in that sort of place. Chris Newton is with us this morning. Chris is a vet, served 13 years in the U.S. Army, retiring as a sergeant first class. Check this out, Rev. You ready? While in the U.S. Army, Chris completed four combat tours in Iraq, one humanitarian tour in Haiti, he was an Airborne Ranger, a Scout Sniper. He was awarded two Bronze Stars and three U.S. Army Accommodation Medals. He earned the U.S. Army Ranger Tab, Jumpmaster Badge, Military Parachutist Badge, Expert Infantry Badge, and Combat Infantry Badge. I think it's John J. Rambo <laughs> is what he's known as. Um, Chris, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm well. So you didn't just join. You excelled. Yeah. I mean, you, 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 I'm from the, the country. You took the bull by the horns yes, and sir. said, I want to be a leader in, in the armed services. Was that always your nature? Um, did you get in and become somewhat consumed by the armed forces? Uh, I'll tell you, when I first went in, honestly, I was one of the more simple people when they talk about the reasons why they go into military. I just wanted to run around in the woods and shoot guns. And, uh, <laughs> and when, shortly after I joined the military, 9-11 happened. And uh, that, that kind of dictated how I went forward from there. Explain that. It dictated how you went forward. 9-11 changed all of our lives, mm -hmm. whether we were in the armed forces or not. Yes, sir. But you said that was a pivotal moment in your life. Yes, sir. Kind of walk me through that. Yes, sir. Um, honestly, 9-11, uh, I was I was stationed in D.C. at the time at Fort Myers up in uh, literally in Arlington. And, you know, we, we started watching the, the things on the news that started happening in New York and uh, went out in front of the building to take a minute and take a breath. And uh, we, we actually watched the plane fly down Columbia Pike into the side of the building. 
And uh, after that, we went into the, the cleanup effort down at the Pentagon itself. The, the Department of Defense decided to use uh, the, the infantry regiment that was there to do most of that work. And just being that young and being that in the middle of such a world-altering event just kind of changes your perspective to what's important in life. And and from that point forward, I really went towards the sound of the guns because that's that's what our country was asking us to do at the time. What did you enjoy? I mean, this is a weird question, but was it adrenaline? Was it thrill-seeking? I mean, was it patriotism? What, 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 what? I don't want to say infatuated you. What compelled you to want to run? To, the natural reaction is to run away from the gunfire. You said you ran toward the gunfire. What Was it something in your DNA, or was it something you were inspired by? I don't know. I like to think that my parents raised me right, and, and you know, I've always had a deep love for this country. You know, I grew up on Boy Scout camps most of my, my youth, and uh, it just kind of put that sense of patriotism into you. And then when you got a reason to, 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 to hear that bugle sound, you, you tend to go towards it. Because that's, you know, like I said, that's how I was raised. Okay, let me ask you this. Of all these things you did, what was what was something you enjoyed more? You talked about running around in the woods shooting gun, um, scout sniper. Mm-hmm. I mean, what was the shooting? Was the parachuting? Was the, I mean, just get, I, I what did, is something you really enjoyed? I did enjoy the jumping. I really did. Um, especially when you get into, you're talking about the jump master duties. I mean, you're, you're literally hanging on to two handles, hanging out the side of a military aircraft. It's a, uh, it's, it's a, it's a weird experience. It's fun. And, uh, that was that was probably the best part of the day most of the time. Um, a lot of the other things, um, just to put it nicely, it's it's wonderful. It looks good on paper, but it sucked doing it. Um, getting through ranger school is is no small task, and it, it takes a toll. It it's hard on the body. It's hard on everything. That's why I retired as young as I did. And uh, yeah, most of it, I I enjoyed the soldiering of it, and I enjoyed the leadership of it. But I, but but you made your mind up. You wanted to be a ranger. Yes. And there was no deterrent there. I no. mean, you were going to figure out a way, some way, somehow to go through that training. What about that made you better today? I mean, obviously, there's certain criteria you got to meet to be a ranger mm-hmm. uh, in special forces. W- what about going through that made you a better man today? I'll say, you know, at the end of the day, you, you look at what you can and cannot do with your life. And there's a lot of people that question what they can and cannot do with their life. I know how hard I can go. I know how, how much I can push myself and how much beyond my own personal limits that I can reach. Because in going into that school, I didn't think I belonged there as young as I was when I went. And and standing there graduation day, you realize that you're just you're you're significantly more capable of things than you think you are, and you can go farther and you can go harder. And and since then, that's been kind of a core of how I how I want to live my life. Chris, a lot of a lot of media narrative about the the military report. I mean, Americans are confused about the military hierarchy. You talked about the Pentagon a second ago. Are they telling us the truth or not? Um, but, but I, I still believe that America has an unbelievable degree of respect and support for the rank-and-file soldier. I mean, the man and woman who are doing exactly what you were called to do. Would you encourage others to consider that a career? I mean, historic, in, in modern America culture, you, you got to go get that four-year degree. You know, but, but I argue, no, you don't. I mean, there are a lot of other avenues you can pursue. It's obvious things have worked out for you. So what do you tell someone considering an alternate route they may not want to go to four-year college they may want to consider a career in the military and that's what i'll say you know i I went through the entire enlistment and and retired after 13 years after i retired i i took up that gi bill and i did go to college and i got my degree and uh i moved into what i do now which is police work and and you talk about what's important when i turned in my resume for that and went to go do an interview that fact that i had a four-year degree 
nobody could care less. The only piece of the only word on that piece of paper they saw was Ranger. Um, it's it's really you know you look at, at what's important in life. It gives you trades. You, you get out here in, in the real world, and you know, most trades make more money than than some of these office jobs do anyway. And they're a whole lot more obtainable. And I would say that the the discipline and the respect for your fellow man that the military gives you is one of the most important things we can take away. And you can go into the infantry right now and and look around at the people that are there, how they interact with each other, and realize that you know the, the things that are dividing our country right now, like racism and that kind of thing, they don't exist. Because what matters is the people to your left and right, whether or not they can do their job and succeed. And at the end of that day, you know what you go through together, and it, it tears down a lot of walls. And it makes you appreciate your friends. Let, let me ask you this. And tell as little or as much as you'd like. Because mm-hmm. I, I always I think it's interesting to carry our listeners to where you were. So four combat tours in Iraq. Yes, sir. Give me the scariest moment. I mean, give, give me the moment that you're like, wow. I mean, you know, am I going to really get out of here or not? I mean, obviously you did. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but some didn't. Uh, I mean, th- there's some people that aren't sitting here talking about what you and I are talking about. But but give me, I mean, as comfortable as you are with talking about whatever it is you choose to talk about in regards to that. Yes, sir. Um, uh, most of my time in Iraq, honestly, you're, you're going so fast and you're working so hard, you really don't think about it. And that, that fear factor isn't that bad. But uh, we were, uh, I want to say this was 2007 or eight, maybe 2008. It was during the surge. Um, my unit was assigned to... Sadr City in that area in northern Baghdad that was as bad as it was. And we went out one night. We had a uh, raid we had to do. And it was a two-platoon hit. It was two side-by-side houses. We pushed into Sadr City. And as soon as you cross that line into Sadr City, you start getting shot at. And that was the nature of the beast back then. And uh, as soon as we pulled onto that street, the first RPG came towards my last vehicle. And I got on the radio, started calling for that squad leader, see how he was. I was a platoon sergeant at the time. And... uh. Start talking to them. Everybody got back up on the radio, and everything was good. All of my dismounts left the the Humvees, and we were running Humvees back then, and they start hitting these houses. I had a brand-new lieutenant at the time. He hit the wrong house. So they're calling over the radio trying to figure out where they're supposed to be. And I'm sitting in you know this truck and then the, in that front seat, and I've got a fifty caliber machine gun right over my head just lighting up the other side of the road. And... I tap my gunner on the leg. I'm like, hey, I, I got to go. I got to get out and get over there. Waiting on him to stop firing long enough for me to get out from underneath that gun gave me enough time to think about it. And I'm like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever done. And my wife was pregnant at the time. And you know, so I grabbed hold of that door handle. I'm like, this, this, is how, this is how it ends right here. And just waiting for that, that minute to pop that door. That was the scariest time I had in Iraq. And a, then, mo- a moment to think. It was. And, and that was the first time, honestly, in, in all of my time over there. That's about the only time I had time to really think about it before it happened. And uh, But, you know, it worked out. I popped that door, took off running. There was rounds skipping around, but I made it to the to the courtyard where I was going. And thank the good Lord you're sitting in front of us. Yes, sir. Uh, we say thank you, and I mean that sincerely, but we got some sponsors that want to do a little better than that. Our title sponsors for the Honor Event Program include Marlboro PD Electric Cooperative, Florence Toyota, and Pepsi-Cola of Florence, and along with many other local businesses providing a nice uh, prize package here for you as a token of appreciation and oil change courtesy of Florence Toyota. We have gift bags provided by Pepsi-Cola of Florence, Tandem Health, and FTC, gift cards on behalf of Swipe Payment Solutions, Wholesale Carpet, Heinz Furniture, Piggly Wiggly of Darlington and Hartsville, Piggly Wiggly of Sumter, Manning, Bishopville, and Camden, 
The 19th Green Indoor Golf Center, a gift basket courtesy of Boykin Heating and Air, an overnight hotel stay for you at Hotel Florence, downtown Florence, and a gift card for dinner at Victor's located in the Hotel Florence. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate your service, and um, and those are interesting. Just so compelling stories. Yeah. Uh, just, just imagine a moment to think. I mean, as long as you're moving and reacting and doing what you're trained to do, I guess it's um, you don't think about it, but that moment to think is kind of an interesting takeaway from um, and thank you, Chris. I mean that sincerely. Thank you. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. We are normally jammed up. We're normally behind. We're actually ahead a bit today, right? Right, Josh? We are. Rev would argue, now we're on schedule. We're, we're not ahead. We're <laughs> actually, on schedule. We're, we're on time Where today. we should be. We're not behind, so we're on We're on schedule. What does that say when you're on schedule, but it feels like you're way ahead? Well, it means we're just we're doing it a different way today. I mean, the, yeah. the, uh, the honor of vet is normally at 745. The last two weeks, we've had some scheduling conflicts, so we've done it in the uh, in the 9 o'clock hour. doesn't matter when we do it as long as it gets done because I think one of the most important things we do, and I mean this sincerely, is to honor those men and women who have represented this country, acquitted themselves in representing uh, this country in admirable fashion, and it's always kind of interesting and intriguing to me to hear the different things they've done. You know, men and women who are in the Army, Air Force, Navy, Marines, uh, I guess Coast Guard, you know, what they've done, when they did it, how they did it, and the personal experiences that they share with us. Um, we're still doing Honor of Vet. That's right. And if you've got somebody out there that you want to nominate as a, um, I guess, a candidate, there's a website. I'll let Rev tell you. He can do better than I can. Only if you've got somebody in your world that you think, I think deserves being, um, you know, recognized, here we go. A few more weeks uh, of our Honor of Vet program. We've done it for several years over the course of the summer we'll go through labor day maybe the week after and we're still accepting nominations it's very simple just go to honor and there's an entry form right on that page if you'd like to nominate somebody that is deserving uh like i say several more uh, veterans will be honored over the course of the program this year we have a lot of sponsors that have really stepped up they want to be a part of this and support the veterans and of course we mentioned our title sponsors pepsi cola of florence Marlboro PD Electric Cooperative, Florence Toyota, but a lot of supporting sponsors as well. Heinz Furniture, Stoudemire Dowling Funeral Home, Boykin Air Conditioning Services, Swipe Payment Solutions, FTC, Tandem Health, Palmetto Mining, Liberty Guns, Piggly Wiggly in Hartsville and Darlington, Safe Federal Credit Union, At Your Service Home Care, Wholesale Carpet, Piggly Wiggly in Sumter, Manning, Bishopville and Camden, your CBD store, Hotel Florence, the 19th Green Indoor Golf Center, and Victor's restaurant. So we just thank uh, we thank the sponsors, but they all want to be a part of our honoring of veterans for this program, and we appreciate it. You know, one thing I'm going to try and pay close attention to over the weekend, and I mean this sincerely. I wish this. I mean, I, I, America's better if this doesn't cross my mind, but but it 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 has, and it continually crosses my mind. Oliver Anthony better be hopeful that he's never done anything stupid i mean that's right. where we are yeah. in america i mean you know the there, there um, will be forces looking into him because they, already they, don't, are. they don't like his message they already right? are i mean his message is to the deplorables i mean he's singing about the deplorables to the deplorables he's talking about the rich men north of north of richmond and oliver anthony probably can't imagine you know what the new york times why the new york times would be interested in is you know, his high school life, his college life, his, um, you know, what, what did he have a DUI? Did he have a speeding ticket? Has he done what, you know, what, what stupid thing has he done in his life? 
Here's what I'm sure of. He's done a stupid thing in his life. I mean, I, I'm sure of that. I mean, we all have multiple stupid things in our lives. Um, but but he's all of a sudden uh, a symbol. I mean, he's a he's he's he wrote a song, sang a song that has become somewhat of an anthem of the you know the deplorables, the American working class, and they've got to disparage, they've got to marginalize. But they've got to, you know, make it, why would you follow this guy? He did this in 19, you know, 91, or he did this in, in 1997. And I think he may be a bit, no, I don't think he's naive. You don't write that song if you're naive. I mean, you don't write that song and, and those lyrics if you're oblivious to what's happening in America um, today. But I do think the one thing he's probably underestimated is what people are willing to do and try to, to tear him down. What they're willing to do now to try and, you know, um, you can't do anything about the song. The production's done. Um, I'm going to imagine a guy named Oliver Anthony passing Taylor Swift. Nobody passes Taylor Swift <laughs> in selling records. Right, Rev? Right. I mean, she's the biggest show on earth. I yep. mean, she really and truly is. And in, in music today, she's probably as big as it gets, I would imagine. Um, but he did. Singing about the peasants. Singing about the deplorables. Singing about the forgotten men and women. And that just can't stand. It can't stand. So, so once again, if you can't, if you can't, you know, um, if you can't change the lyrics of the song, you, you got to go kill the messenger. And then he's the messenger of, um, of that song. So it'll be very interesting to, I don't know, watch that sort itself out. Um, my money's on the New York Times. <laughs> I mean, the Times has a, um, a wealth of an abundant infrastructure, a lot of, um, I mean, not as many human beings at the Times as there once was. But I got to believe that some, you know, they have no interest in plundering through um, whether or not, what is it, Robert uh, L. Peters. Uh, <laughs> in, instead of going after Robert L. Peters, Art Vendelay, they'll, right. they'll, go, they'll go after, they'll go after, um, there may be some comparison to George Costanza and Joe Biden. <laughs> I mean, when you think about it a little bit, I mean, there, there, there's a weird um connection there yeah costanza is not a good guy no he's not a good guy he wants to be somebody else right. i mean you know that's how when, when you're not a good guy you want to be somebody else and i think joe biden wants to be robert l peters i mean that that's uh well a, a pseudonym uh you know an alias that he used or we suspect he may have used not, nothing has been corroborated we are corroborated we expect that um combers are making the accusation now, now once again if the accusation is proven to be accurate, what defense is there? I mean, no, I mean, what defense, if, if this accusation is accurate, what possible defense? I mean, forget Trump for two seconds. I mean, I understand it, but but what possible defense? You know, well, I mean, you, the, the shale company, I can explain that. You know, the idea, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the peddling of influence, the illusion of influence, uh, you know, but, but if the guy actually used, a false name to be copied on emails so the emails couldn't be foiled. What, what other, I mean, if, if you're a, if you're a never Trumper, that's got to convince you that, I mean, we're trying to find out if Trump's a crook, right? Well, they're, they're trying, they're well, trying mean, to, we got indictments and we'll have they, trials. Got crimes, and, they're trying to pin well, them I mean, on somebody. You're, you're right. I mean, you know, we so, know so, so we're, we're on a journey with Trump, but, but we're not on a journey with, with Joe Biden and how? I mean, how are we not pursuing um, that? Let's go to the phone. Johnny in Hartsville. Good morning. Hey, morning, guys. Um, did you happen to catch 
uh, Vivek Ramaswamy on uh, Tucker on Twitter. I wa- yeah. Yesterday, I watched all forty-five minutes yesterday. Man, that was that not wonderful? That sounded great <laughs> to me. He is. Um, I mean, he he's articulating. Thank you, Johnny. Appreciate it. Yeah, for those interested, it's on Twitter, and it's about forty-five minutes long. And Ramaswamy's on it. I mean, he he is on it. I mean, he. I'm telling you guys. Uh, I mean, Trump's the the the, the 800 pound gorilla. I mean, there's no doubt about it. He's the um. I mean, he's the he's the. What am I trying to say? The resistible force, the movable object. I mean, he's whatever. He's both of those. Okay, Trump's the immovable object and the resist whatever the force. Help me here, unstoppable John. Unstoppable force. Yeah, unstoppable force. There you go. Something to do with gravity and inertia and, you know, <laughs> mass and all that. <laughs> Velocity and all that. There's an EMC squared. So anyway, um, energy. There you go. Political energy. He would be the uh, the embodiment of political energy. But but I, I'm telling you, Ramaswamy, and he won me over when he tried to explain, because it was really a moment that the media thought they could get him. I mean, he's a biotech guy. He's made some money in that industry. What does he know about China-Taiwan? Well, he knew a lot. He knew far more than they imagined he would, and he started, I mean, he gave an explanation. When asked about, you know, Ukraine, and he, and he said, look, I'm, I'm not totally opposed to helping Ukraine. I understand some of the NAFTA, uh, some of the um, NATO obligations, and I understand expansionist Russia. I do think the American taxpayer deserves to have some accountability, you know, what are they spending the money on? Do we just continue to blindly send money to Ukraine and say, hey, you know, we'll figure out what we're doing with it later. But but then they were asked, they asked him about Taiwan and, and China. And he, in a nanosecond, said, the reason we care about Taiwan is they produce 80% of the semiconductors the world consumes. How have we gotten ourselves in a position that we don't manufacture semiconductors? Why are we dependent on a small island off the coast of China for all the semiconductors to conduct. I mean, we're the biggest economy in the world. And and we're depending on Taiwan. We know the exposure to risk they have because of a 1949 deal. And he said, so if China and Taiwan want to fight over a 1949 territorial dispute, that's not our baby. But it, but if we are going to involve ourselves because China may, may inhibit the production and exporting of, of semiconductors, then we should all be ashamed we've got ourselves in that position, that we depend on Taiwan to provide the American economy with the semiconductors it needs. And he, I mean, he went back, I mean, he kind of got in the weeds. The uh, the 45-minute interview, Josh, with, uh, with Tucker, you know, he's recently said that the American government aren't telling you the truth about 9-11. Oh, here we go. Here we go. Oh, boy. Yeah, here's Alex Jones. I mean, here we go. <laughs> And it's nothing like that. He just argues that there were some there were some people involved early in the investigation that were not who they we were told they were, and and he believes that the, the Saudi you know Saudi Arabian government had a lot more to do with this than we've been led to believe. And and he basically says the American people have been told the truth. They've just not been told the truth about nine eleven. Now now when the liberal media hears him say. The American people have not been told the truth about 9-11. You know where they go. He's accusing George W. Bush of flying those planes in those buildings. He said nothing of the sort. He didn't get remotely close to that. He's, he's basically saying that there was a Saudi American or a Saudi Arabian living in America, and during the investigation, the, the government said he was X and he was not. 
He was not who they told us he was. And, I mean, it, listen, I mean, it, it's interesting. It's at the front end of it because that's the most recent example of the left trying to marginalize Vivek Ramaswamy as some, you know, out-of-the-mainstream fringe conspiracy theorist. Guys, everything's not a conspiracy, but some things are. I mean, everything that happens in America today is not a conspiracy, but some are. And I think that's where we've got to land. I mean, you can't, you, you can't, your rabbit ears can't automatically go to, you know, um, Josh got here five minutes earlier than he normally does. Wonder why. Ooh, what's up with that? He just may have gotten up a couple of minutes earlier. You know what I mean? May, may not have stopped where he stops. May have caught all the all the green lights or instead of the rest. Something. Yeah, but, but it, we, we, we tend to get ourselves worked up into this <laughs> everything's a conspiracy mode. We've got to be careful with that. There are conspiracies. There is no doubt the government conspires. But everything from daylight to dark, Sunday to Sunday, is not a conspiracy. Time for our Takes Mondays to make Friday's trivia. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. We honored a vet about thirty minutes ago. He was a decorated vet. He was a combat vet. A lot of um, uh, parachutists and special forces and army rangers and combat tours here and and combat tours there. Remind me of John J. Rambo. <laughs> Remember the, the the fictional character John Rambo that um Sylvester Stallone played. Oh yeah. John Rambo was introduced to America. In what movie? What was the first movie? I mean, there was a series. Imagine Stallone doing a series. Um, <laughs> needs a bigger mansion, yeah, I guess. Right. Um, and another plastic surgery. But anyway, um, <laughs> what was the first movie that America was introduced to? John J. Rambo. Hi, you're on the air. You know the answer? First Blood. First Blood is right. Who is this and where are you calling from? T.C. Fowler. Florence, South Carolina. Thank you, TC. Appreciate it. Yeah, it was First Blood, and then Rambo 1, Rambo 2, Rambo 3, Rambo 4, Rocky 6, Rocky 7, Rocky. Yeah. has kind of a – he's consistent. I mean, you give him credit. He's consistent. But First Blood was the first first one. Thanks to Pepsi of Florence, and uh, thanks to TC. He wins a six-pack of Pepsi product, a couple of takes Mondays to make Friday's T-shirts. But, um, yeah, the first time America was introduced to, you know – and that's probably the first understanding I had of um of special forces. When when you know yeah probably he so. was he was arrested for vagrancy I think or something like that. And remember they abused him and took advantage of him and um he goes out of the woods and the the, the best scene of there is when this sheriff the local sheriff says so you mean to tell me that your boy the boy that you programmed is is a match for two hundred of the finest law enforcement agents this state has to offer, and, and, the, and the, the the general or the colonel or whoever, the high-ranking official the Pentagon sent to kind of, you know, see what was wrong with their boy, where, where the wiring went bad. He said, no, I'm just telling you to carry a lot of body bags. Remember that? Mm-hmm. I just, if you're going after him, yep. carry a lot of body bags with you. And um, remember he stitched himself up in the yep, arm? I do. Uh, anyway, and then we had Rambo 1, Rambo 2. Were there more Rambos or more Rockies? That would be a good a good question. Lost a count. Good, I don't a know. A good trivia question. That. Between, there was about 25 or 30 uh, between uh, any kind of, as many plastic surgeries for, for Stallone. <laughs> uh, kind of an interesting moving and bobbing week. A little bit different here at the end. But I want to thank Pepsi, uh, along with all of our sponsors. Um, Pepsi sponsors 
every show we have. I saw the other day where you guys were out with um first uh, thirst, thirst responders, responders. Yes, um, kind of uh, meeting the community where it is with some Gatorade and water and things like that. Pepsi yep. has always been intimately uh, supportive of its communities, and Pepsi of Florence has been on board with us since day one, and we certainly do appreciate. Uh, what they do for us. That's been a lot of fun. Our promotions director, Jeff Lyons, has been out with the thirst responders, and he's found people that are working outside in the heat, and Pepsi-Cola of Florence provided those cold Gatorades and waters, and I think people were very much receptive and enjoying. It seemed to be. I looked on Facebook or yep. saw on Facebook where um, some of the folks, I mean, if you're working outside, you're hot, period. I mean, you got to be careful. It's been really, really, really hot. Um, I guess climate change is you know, right now happening. Will it happen next week? <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. I bet it'll be yeah. cold later, en too. Enjoy your weekend. We'll talk Monday.